The Roman Empire is known for the glory of its legions, but they would have been useless without the incredible Roman road system. The huge road network connected the entire empire by remarkably built roads and avenues, totaling 400 kilometers, connecting Rome to the edges of the empire. These roads were renowned for being extremely smooth. Their many layers of paving were so well done that many of these roads are in perfect condition today. These roads were used by travelers and merchants throughout the empire, and the legions also marched on them to enforce Rome's will everywhere. One of the oldest and most famous of these roads is the Appian Way, built in 312 BC. In the first century, the famous expression, all roads lead to Rome, was born. chair. I suspect this is going to be a very long show. I never know how long because after I do the show and write everything up that I don't know until I listen to it at the end. So I have a feeling that I might have left some things out on this show because it was pretty big and complicated because it's about the Romans. We got them kids. We got them. They are the Romans, okay, and I have everything here to show you why I'm saying this, okay, because I had so many files already going on these people, and, you know, things like that nose has been rattling around my brain forever. Well, <laughs> uh, during World War II, the Nazis were completely unable to tell who was Italian and who was Jewish, okay? So, yeah, very interesting, right? And, of course, in early Europe, the hooked Roman nose signified beauty and nobility. So I will be talking about all things Roman today. Finally, this is all coming together. So parts of it, you know, this is lots and lots of files that I put together, so... I think I have in the order that I think it should be. So anyways, and obviously, <clears throat> speaking of the Romans, you know, it started out as a uh, pagan religion, okay, and uh, having to do with magic, everything I've been talking about. And so um, how obvious is this? The Catholic Church is also known as the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll be talking about, oh, let me go through this first. And the Catholic Church is the largest Christian church with 1.3 baptized Catholics worldwide as of 2019. Sitting right there in front of us, right there in front of us. Okay, and what else do I have here? Uh, um, so, yeah. They, they filled many roles, and it's interesting because these early Roman places got transfers into Christian places. So it, it's quite a story here, quite a story, um, because the Christian religion is based on the reported teachings of Jesus who lived in, in the... But then, you know, it, you'll have to listen to this show. I'm not going to try to recap anything here. But what's interesting about this also is that 
this Roman deal. Okay, well, who is also in the Bible? The Romans. <laughs> so I don't know the Bible, so I just asked, I just looked at some simple questions like, why is the book of Romans so important? And it said, the letter to the Romans stand as the clearest and most systematic presentation of the Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. Paul began by discussing that which is most easily observable in the world, the sinfulness of all humanity. All people have been condemned due to our rebellion against God. Well, I got to tell you, um, this is rather negative, if you ask me. You know, it's like we, we always are, are <laughs> well, you have to decide for yourself. But it appears to me that they always have this impression that we are the crazy ones. <laughs> We're the ones doing all the bad stuff. And I think this show will kind of uh, show you uh, otherwise, okay, because they're the, they're the cops and they're the robbers both. So let me stick on here. And so I was looking at this Romans deal in the Bible, which I didn't include in the show. And it said, Romans is a wonderful book of the Bible. Many of you probably have heard of the Roman road before, as you can show people the path to salvation through different verses in Romans. I guess Roman is about recruiting. Okay, Romans was written by Paul to the Christian churches in Rome. This book is chock full of wisdom and knowledge. Some passages can be difficult to understand, especially chapter 9 with predestination. But every verse in the, is in the Bible for a reason. Okay, so um, that I don't know about. But they do say the book of Romans is one of the most significant books in the Bible. It is the first letter of the New Testament. The reason it is in the New Testament letter is not because it was written first chronologically, but because the early church considered it the letter of primary importance. So, big deal about the Romans in the Bible also, right? The is called the Epistle, E-P-I-S-T-L-E, -E, to the Romans, is the sixth book of the in the New Testament, and the longest of the 13 Pauline epistles. Biblical scholars agree that it was composed by Paul the Apostle to explain the salvation is off, that that salvation is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, I'm pretty certain that Jesus Christ is, is fake, so this seems to be like it's trying to get people to believe in some fake person, but everybody has to decide for themselves. So, um, I was confused about Cleopatra, uh, <laughs> of, of many things, um, and uh, she was really from Egypt, but Cleopatra was living in Rome as Caesar's mistress at the time of his violent death in 44 B.C., his assassination put her own life in danger, and she fled with their young son across the river Tiber. A Roman painting in the house of Marcus Fabius Rufus at Pompeii, Italy, depicting Cleopatra as Venus Genetrix and her son Caesarion as a Cupid. So that is where Cleopatra really is. It wasn't really kind of, it was kind of a Roman thing, but not really a Roman thing. Okay. So, 
what's going to be going on in all these segments today? Let me just give you a real brief overview and then just let the show get going. Okay, um, there's, there's a lot of this pagan business, how pagans, the paganism become, became the Christians, okay? Also, I'm going to run a clip about the history of the mafia. Uh, because the mafia got going with prohibition, you know, liquor, right? So, uh, you know, these things are all staged, right? Well, what's going on now? I kind of wandered in and out of this when I was uh, recording it, but they're doing the same thing with likely with marijuana in this country, right? Biden is saying he's going to legalize it. Well, if you pay attention, nobody's going to get released from prison from what Biden's saying, okay? Um, anyway, so bottom line is, I mean, you know, I don't think they want to release it because I think the cops are, are running the marijuana gang out of California. So, okay. Um, also, I will be talking about the three power structure, the city of London, Washington, D.C., and the Vatican, the three people who rule this world. And behind those three people are a group called the Black Nobility. I'm touching on them in this show, but I will be back with much more because I wanted this show to be kind of like the catch-all of everything I know about why this is who they are. So <laughs> it's been going on for a long time um, this week, me recording this. So I'm sometimes I may saying, say the same thing over, but well, how it's going, right? So I also have some interesting terms because it turns out um, the Roman Empire was right before the German Empire. So a lot of dots are getting connected. I have a piece on the Roman influence in Washington, D.C. Um, Romans also in London. Romans actually were in London and that's how it got started. So a lot of this stuff. Um, also, <clears throat> because I'm kind of fix, fixated on noses, I will be talking about the Roman noses. All those, all those fake Jews are actually Romans. Is how it works. Okay. And I have a, I, ha, I had a million files on this, and this, this whole thing just all came together. Okay. So I'm just going to put them all in here. I had a file. I have a segment on the Roman temples. <laughs> I have a file on the Roman pagans how they were pagans. I have a file on a segment on the Roman statues, what, how that wove the story here. And let me see, I have at the end, I have a segment on the black nobility. And I will be getting back to that much more intensely later, but I wanted to put it all into this one show. And stick around to the end because I want to talk to you about hand towels and you're gonna think what in the heck is that about well hang around to the end and i will tell you why i want to talk to you about hand towels so hang on to your hats kids it's a wild show okay before we get behind the mask let's talk about this current situation three corporations run the world city of london Washington, D.C., and Vatican City. They come under no national authority. They have separate laws. They pay no taxes. They have their own police force. And they even possess their own flags of independence. They control the military, spiritual of those in power, and it is just 
interesting stuff that how it all connects. All of my work has been really about how did all this stuff get started, right? So uh, before we get to that part and talking about the Romans, <laughs> um, you know, the mafia structure that we have in this country will start to uh, make some more sense to you. I've kind of been offhandedly talking about the mafia in Silicon Valley. And, you know, it is interesting because we got computers in our homes, because I was in Silicon Valley at the time, in the mid-90s, and when did the Gotti trial and the Mafia <laughs> kind of close up? Well, <laughs> not that long ago. I always have to put together a timeline and all these words these people use to get things straight. But yeah, uh, right at the time that they were, uh, you know, Giuliani and them were doing all those fake Mafia trials, was about the time that Silicon Valley was created. But I'll get much more into all that later, so... Okay, um, and what's interesting, okay, uh, I was talking in the show, last show, about these phallic symbols, okay, they're also called obelisks, O-B-E-L-I-S-K, okay, obelisk, very important word for you to know, okay, um, <laughs> so, what is in all these locations? Well, they're, they all have these particularly giant phallic-shaped stone monuments called obliques, okay? So let's start off first. We have the London obelisk. Um, the London obelisk is also called <clears throat> Cleopatra's Needle. It's located on the banks of the River Thames. This obelisk was transported to London and erected in 1878, under the reign of Queen Victoria. The obelisk originally stood in the Egyptian city of On, O-N, or Helipolis, H-E-L-I-O-P-O-L-I-S, and that Helipolis is the city of the sun. The Knights Templars' land extended to this area of the Thames, where the Templars had their own docks. Either side of the obelisk is surrounded by Sphinx, more symbolism dating back to the ancient world. Okay, that's London, okay? In D.C., this obelisk is known as the Washington Monument, was dedicated to George Washington by the Secretive Brotherhood of Freemason Lodge and the District of Columbia in 1848. They also contributed 22 Masonic memorial stones, 250 Masonic lodges, financed of oh, this 250 Masonic lodges financed the Washington Monument obelisk, including the Knights of Templars Masonic Order. And then there's the Vatican Obelisk, located in St. Peter's Square. That was moved from, well, I'm just saying this, and I don't want to say supposedly every time I say something right, okay. This obelisk was moved from Egypt, Egypt to its current location in 1586. The circle on the ground represents the female vagina, while the obelisk itself is a penis. This is commonly known as occult symbolism. So the Vatican obelisk, they say, is occult symbolism, okay? 
Okay. So let's start off with the city of London, okay? That is where all of the money gets rigged up, okay? The city of London. There's a world of information. Just type in that word, the city of London, okay? The city of London was formed when the Romans arrived in Great Britain 2,000 years ago and started a trading post on the River Thames. See, they arrived there, right? Um, We see these people drinking coffee online. Oh, that looks nice. <laughs> I'm trying to drink a cup of coffee without smacking the microphone. Okay. Um, okay, so supposedly the Romans arrived in Great Britain 2,000 years ago. The Romans, who also uh, were responsible for the calendar, so we, we're not really clear on what all these dates really mean, okay? Because there's a reason why we got divided up with different languages, different time zones, different calendars, so... Confusion is thick. Um, there are people who have unraveled this calendar stuff, but it is too much for my brain. Just assume that I'm reading these years. I'm not just saying they're all true. Okay, so 2,000 years ago, the Romans arrived, okay? A 1,000 years later, William the Conqueror, King William III, gave sovereign status to the city of Londoners in 1694, allowing them to continue enjoying separate rights and privileges so long as they recognized him as king. The kings that succeeded William, however, decided to build a new capital city and named it Westminster. There have been numerous instances of the king and the city mayors at loggerheads with each other. So yeah, okay, supposedly now, okay. And then I found this thing that said, what is peculiar is that laws passed by the British Parliament do not apply to the city of London. So, you know, the city of London is one square, it's a one square mile city it has its own separate city halls. It has its own elect separate mayors who collect separate taxes to fund separate police who enforce separate laws. <laughs> city of London has its own separate flag and crest, while London City does not. The mayor of the city of London has a fancy title, and that person, of course, has a fancy title, right? Um, they also, in the city of London, please go look it up. They, they walk around in all these <laughs> skirts and regal outfits. <laughs> so. Okay, their title is The Right Honorable the Lord Mayor of London. And he rides, or she, however you want to look at all this, rides in a golden carriage to Guildhall, while the mayor of London wears a suit and takes a bus. <laughs> The mayor of London has no power over the right honorable lord. Okay. Um, the city of London is a corporation and older than the United Kingdom, but has a representative in the UK Parliament through a person known as a Rembrancer, R-E-M-E-M-B-R-A-N-C-E-R. Who is, who is present to protect the city's interests. Okay, so yeah, the city of London is a corporation. Uh, it's older than United Kingdom. That's pretty key here, okay? <laughs> so. The city of London 
is controlled. Now, I don't know that this part is true. Okay, the city of London is controlled by the Bank of England, a private corporation owned by the Rothschild family. See, everybody wants to know about those Rothschilds. Now, this, I'm not, I'm squishy on, okay? But supposedly, City of London is controlled by the Bank of England, which is a private company owned by the Rothschild family, after Nathan Rothschild crashed the English stock market in 1812 and took control of the Bank of England. The Queen refers to the City of London Corporation as the firm, but it is known as the Crown, which is not representing the royalty of Britain. Buckingham Palace is in London, but not in the city of London, and the city is not part of England. It is its own corporation within a slice right in the center there, okay? They also, I might add, control the um, you know price of gold and silver. So just think about that when you're on social media and people are telling you to buy gold and silver right now, okay? <laughs> Good luck eating gold and silver. Invest in food and water. So, so anyway, so City of London directly and indirectly controls all mayors, councils, regional councils, multinational and transnational banks, corporations, judicial systems, and they do this through this thing called the Old Bailey Temper. Temple Bar, okay, Old Bailey Temple Bar, and the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Also controls the IMF, World Bank, Vatican Bank. Um, they say that Rothschild, because um, everybody always wants to blame it all on them, they have, a, supposedly, Rothschilds have a London Italian subsidiary called Torolia, T-O-R-L-O-N-I-A. Okay, City of London also controls European Central Bank, United States Federal Reserve, which is privately owned and secretly controlled by eight British-controlled shareholding banks. That I have not confirmed, okay? So, these, I think this is these eight banks, um, the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, which is also British controlled and oversees all of the reserve banks around the world, including the United States. So Bank of Switzerland, this makes sense, right? And the European Union and the United Nations Organization. The Crown controls the global financial system and runs the governments of all Commonwealth countries and many non-Commonwealth nations such as Greece. The crown traces back to the Vatican, which is headed by the Pope. So yes, um, in essence, let me see here, the City of London Corporation would become One World Earth Corporation and privately own the world. And that's basically what they're doing because all these financial people are out of the City of London. And part of their deal is to buy up all the property, control all the food. You know, those little details. Okay, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is not part of the United States. District of Columbia is located on 10 square miles of land. D.C. has its own flag and own independent constitution. Here again, I haven't looked this part up, but I'll tell you what it is because it's... <laughs> 
very interesting. This constitution operates under a tyrannical Roman law known as Lex Fori, F-O-I, okay? All of our laws trace back to Roman, so we'll get to that down the road here, okay? Um, D.C. Constitution has nothing to do with the American Constitution. The Act of 1871 passed by Congress created a separate corporation known as the United States and Corporate Government for the British of Columbia. Thus, D.C. acts as a corporation through the Act. The flag of Washington's District Columbia has three stars. The three stars denoting D.C., Vatican City, and City of London. Okay, um, people have looked into these various treaties, and there is so much, <coughs> there is so much to all this stuff that I highly encourage you to go look because there's all this stuff about are we still subjects? And there was a treaty of <coughs> 1783 declaring independence in Great Britain. However, this treaty identifies the King and Queen of England as the Prince of the United States. So, <laughs> um, so look up the Treaty of 1783. And yeah, um, Prince of the United States. Nevertheless, according to Bovier, B-O-U-V-I-E-R's Law Dictionary, in monocardial governments, a subject owns purse permanent allegiance to the monarch, in which case the British subject in colonized America owned, owed permanent allegiance to the monarch. The reverse is applicable under constitutional law where allegiance is owned by the sovereign and to law. Anyway, this stuff, this stuff makes my head a little dizzy, okay? <laughs> so, um, um, and I'm going to Please jot down some of these things because these some of these laws could go on for a million years. But yeah, they own us, right? Okay, because remember when I was talking about the Fourteenth Amendment that we thought freed the slaves? Well, that enslaved all of us, right? So um, that's why I say be very careful of going to any FEMA trucks or anything because <clears throat> they already own us. They will be setting up separate lines. So <laughs> okay, here let me see. There was this person that brought up this question that said, the, the issue is, because all this stuff is all these law, laws and their attorneys and all this stuff, right? I've been saying for years, they're making this up as they go along. So, the issue is, if a war was fought in 1781 and America became victor, why would Britain need to sign a treaty in 1783? Which is a very good question, right? When U.S. has won a war, America would not require the British monarch to cede land and refer to himself as Prince of the Holy Roman Empire and of the United States. <coughs> <coughs> so yeah, why, why, why exactly did they sign that treaty, right? It, because it made, <laughs> it made them the Prince of the Holy Roman Empire of the United States. <laughs> there is also the issue of the term Esquire, given that it is a title of nobility. So yeah, they, they were given these people um, 
Benjamin Franklin, they had the John J. Esquire, and John Adams was signing on behalf of the U United States, and he used the name Esquire, which raises questions about is the 1783 treaty even valid? Well, this is why I keep saying this is a big magic trick, right? They, they tell us these things, but then they have to trick it on the other end. And sometimes some tricks are just better than other tricks, right? Okay, so um, then um, so this John Jay person went on to sign the 1794 treaty between England and the U.S., raising this question again, why 13 years after the Parachute Treaty did the U.S. need to sign a treaty with England if the U.S. was really independent? Lots of big questions here, right? <clears throat> okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, the U.S. still continues to pay tax to the City of London. Okay. These, if you're not confused enough, I'll keep confusing all of us here, okay? Because some of this is worth, please, investigating further. I'm trying to document it all, right? So... I don't want to just start, like, brushing past things, so. The 1794 treaty signed between England and the U.S. was negotiated by John J. Esquire, who negotiated the 1783 treaty. So, yes, why would they be signing these treaty after they did the Paris Treaty of 1783, declaring the U.S. independent? Well, why'd they do it? Because it was a trick. <laughs> and we never were independent, right? They had the trick in from the very beginning, okay? Just like they set up all those mental words and trick people into what part of the countries they would shove them to, right? So, okay. Okay, now this is this is so beyond what I could even understand, but like I said, I'm not going to start picking and choosing because I'm getting dizzy. So maybe some of you are more skilled in the legal field. Okay, from this piece, it went on to say, further reading of U.S. history would reveal what happened to America when it canceled the charter of the First National Bank in 1811 and immediately afterwards, 4,500 British troops arrived and burnt down the White House. They also burnt down both Houses of Congress, the War Office, the U.S. State Department and Treasury, Treasury, and destroyed the ratification records signed by 12 U.S. states of the U.S. Constitution wherein the 13th Amendment was to stop anyone receiving a title of nobility or honor from serving the U.S. government. So, yes, this is all very suspect because knowing their history of fires and stuff, right? So, um, they signed this thing. They canceled this thing called the Charter of the First National Bank in 1811, okay? And right after that, all these British troops arrived, burns down the White House, well, are they burning it down because it didn't really even exist before? And that's the reason why they had to, see what I'm saying? It could be saying, well, we burned it down, but was it there? I don't know. I wasn't there <laughs> as far as I know. Um, the 1812 war lasted three years, and the bank charter was reestablished in 1816, 
after the ratification of the Treaty of Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, in 1815. So the 13th Amendment was ratified in 1810, but no longer appears on current U.S. Constitution. Okay, so... In 1913, the Federal Reserve was passed by the U.S. Congress, handing over America's gold and silver reserves and total control of the American economy. The Federal Reserve is a privately owned banking system. Okay, um, sometimes have these PZ people going to roll around. Okay, it appears that the U.S. Corporation is owned by the same country that owns Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and they're all serving the Queen. Yes, Canada, we are all considered New World company, countries. No one ever considers, new, we're, we're New World countries, and they're establishing the New World Order, and that's why they're raining down on certain countries faster and harder than the rest, okay? Okay... So yeah, uh, Vatican City, it's not part of Rome or Italy. The Vatican is the last true remnant of the Roman Empire. The state of Israel is also said to be a Roman outpost. The Vatican's wealth includes investments with all, you know, you know we could go on for the next hundred years about their wealth, you know, all of their hoarding of wealth. That's always bothered me, but anyways... Um, Vatican wealth has been accumulated over the centuries by taxing indulgences. Um, so, today the three cities have under their wing various societies and groups. Yes, of course they do. The Fabian Society um, is the society that I will be one of these days getting back to where, where this stuff originated because my next plan... I was going to try to do it for this show, but not going to work. But my next plan is this. Now that I know a lot more about Germany and some dates and stuff, then I can tie in when did they start cooking up this idea of communism, but not going to happen today. So anyways, there was this group. Um, um, they have um, the Fabian Society is one, and it was written in 1887, right around the time frame, right? And it's a mixture of fascism Nazism, Marxism, and Communism. And I think in this show I kind of ramble on about that because this is where I never got back to. And this is where they, um, well, it's pre-Tavistock, okay? It, it's, it was the, the lead up to Tavistock that got to keep moving here. So anyways, this Fabian Society, um, they're the ones who created this communism, <clears throat> the fascism in Italy and Germany and socialism. Okay, so, so they, um, you know, they just set up this dual thing. The reason you see black and white is really quite simple because black means evil, white means good. So they use that as their moniker around, um, so... Okay, closer look at entities like the Bank of International Settlements, called the BIS, and International Monetary Fund, IMF, Club of Rome, the Committee of 300, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, the Council on Foreign Relations, 
the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Groups, the Federal Reserve, the International Revenue Service, Goldman Sachs, well, these people are going around. Well, anyway, they're all involved together. Okay, let's just cut the chase here. Um, and somebody said in some quote in 2001, you probably were not aware that Fabians have taken over the CIA. Yeah, they, they've already taken it all over. Okay. They're responsible for global warming, climate change, federal banking system, big pharma, system of local governments, abolition of property rights. What's this say here? Okay. In 1974, at the Habitat Conference, private property was identified as a threat. Well, let's face it, it all is. I don't need to go deep into that deal. Um, they signed over deals for seizure uh, right before Trump left office. I covered that already in the show about food. Um, okay. Oh, I had this in here because it was interesting to note. If you're in the air conditioning business, I would suggest you stock up on certain things because um, they just held this UN conference on environmental things. Oh, no. Why do I have this here? Oh. I was wondering um, when all of this stuff about the environment and global warming got started because I'm always curious about how things got started. And um, this is where I think it got started. <clears throat> it got started at the UN Conference on Environmental and Development. And that took place in June of 1992. Isn't that interesting? And we got laptop or uh, desktops at our home around 1994. And... In 1994 time frame, they can start a consolidating um, all together, and they were all hooked up. All hooked up. There's this group. I forget the name, but uh, because people always say, "Well, how do you think that they're all coordinated?" Well, yeah, because in 1994 they started this group. It evades my memory right now, but yeah. So th this also started in that same time frame. This environmental trickster stuff, right? Because in 1992, the first conference of its kind, um, commonly referred to as the Rio Conference or Earth Summit. So you can look up there. Okay, so that was a key point there for all this stuff that we're talking about right now with all this horror going on, right? So, okay, I have just a little bit more here. Um, And they always talk about these 13 banking families, okay, that run the world, control the central banks of the world, that print money, give loans on interest. And that has to do with all of this um, debt. I've done, I did shows about how they get us with debt, um, oh, I don't know, several years ago. It was a show about debt bondage. Um, debt bondage is their whole business model for us, right? So anyways, I think we get the picture. Time for me to move on. I just wanted to give you some information up front about where they are now. So then when I have episodes that will be, segments that will be following this, and I start talking about the Romans, <laughs> you can put these pieces all together because I'm trying to tie all my work together in one segment, one show, or whatever because um, I don't want to do series one, series two, and all that because it starts to make it kind of confusing. So I thought, well, might as well cover this right now so when you hear the episodes that are coming, you'll know more about why I'm talking about Romans because the Romans are the ones 
That's why there's all this stuff about mafia stuff, okay? We are in a, and I, hopefully I'll tell you this funny story about the mafia and the marijuana business now that um, Biden is talking about letting people off the hook for marijuana in this country. Well, that, that, that in itself is a trick, okay? No one's going to get out of prison in this country for pot. That's not going to happen. So anyways, here we go. Like the city-state of London and the Vatican, a third city-state was officially created in 1982. That city-state is called the District of Columbia and is located on 10 square miles of land in the heart of Washington. The District of Columbia flies its own flag and has its own independent constitution. Although geographically separate, the city-states of London, the Vatican, and the District of Columbia are one interlocking empire called Empire of the City. The flag of Washington's District of Columbia has three red stars, one for each city-state in the three-city empire. This corporate empire of three city-states controls the world economically through London's inner city, militarily through the District of Columbia, and spiritually through the Vatican. The constitution for the District of Columbia operates under a tyrannical Roman law known as Lex Fori, which bears no resemblance to the U.S. Constitution. When Congress passed the Act of 1871, it created a separate corporate government for the District of Columbia. This treasonous act allowed the District of Columbia to operate as a corporation outside the original Constitution of the United States and outside of the best interests of American citizens. A sobering study of the signed treaties and charters between Britain and the United States exposes a shocking truth the United States has always been, and still is, a British crown colony. King James I was famous not for just changing the Bible into the King James Version, but for signing the first Charter of Virginia in 1606. That charter granted America's British forefathers a license to settle and colonize America. The charter also guaranteed that future kings and queens of England would have sovereign authority over all the citizens and colonized land in America stolen from the Indians. After America declared its independence from Great Britain, the Treaty of 1783 was signed. That treaty specifically identifies the King of England as the Prince of the United States and contradicts the belief that America won the War of Independence. Although King George III of England gave up most of his claims over his American colonies, he kept his right to continue receiving payment for his business venture of colonizing America. If America had really won the War of Independence, they would never have agreed to pay debts and reparations to the King of England. When Congress passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, the U.S. President was made subservient to the King of England. The 13th Amendment is called the Title of Nobility Amendment and forbids U.S. presidents and their officials from using royal titles like king or prince or baron. For some mysterious reason, the 13th Amendment, which was ratified in 1810, no longer appears on current copies of the Constitution. America's blood-soaked war of independence against the British bankrupted America and turned its citizens into permanent debt slaves of the king. In the War of 1812, the British torched and burned to the ground the White House 
and all U.S. government buildings and destroyed ratification records of the U.S. Constitution. One century later, a corrupt U.S. Congress committed the biggest theft in world history. They passed Paul Warburg's Federal Reserve Act in 1913, handing over America's gold and silver reserves and total control of America's economy to the Rothschild banksters. Most Americans still believe that the Fed or Federal Reserve is the government. It is not. The Fed is a privately owned banking system whose majority Class A shareholders are the Rothschilds, Warburgs, Kuhn and Loeb, J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, Israel Seif, and the Lehman Brothers. This private banking cartel is the Fed and is never audited and never pays taxes. They print and design America's money, which displays their symbols of an Egyptian pyramid, a Masonic all-seeing eye, and the words, in God we trust. Who exactly is the God they trust? They also collect American taxpayers' money through the IRS. Then they loan it back again with interest to pay for roads, bridges, and other public. Most U.S. citizens believe that the United States is a country and that the president is the most powerful man on earth. The United States is not a country. It is a corporation, and the president is president of the corporation of the United States. He and his elected officials work for the corporation, not for the American people. Since the United States is a corporation, who owns the corporation of the United States? Like Canada and Australia, whose leaders are prime ministers of the Queen and whose land is called Crown Land, the United States is just another crown colony. Crown colonies are controlled by the empire of three city-states. At the center of each city-state is a towering, phallic-shaped stone monument called an obelisk that points skyward. In D.C. city-state, the obelisk, known as the Washington Monument, was dedicated to Freemason George Washington by the Freemason Grand Lodge of the District of Columbia. The secretive brotherhood of Freemasons laid the Washington obelisk's cornerstone in 1848 and contributed 22 Masonic memorial stones. 250 Masonic lodges financed the Washington Monument obelisk, including the Knights Templar Masonic Order. At the heart of London city-state is a 187-ton, 69-foot-tall Egyptian obelisk called Cleopatra's Needle. It was transported from Egypt and erected on the banks of the River Thames. In Vatican City, another Egyptian obelisk towers high above St. Peter's Square. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some things that I found extraordinarily interesting, okay, about Romans, Germany, and all of this name business. So let me get this file open, okay. The, <coughs> excuse me, the Roman settlement of Londinium, and you can look this up, L-O-N-D-I-N-I-U-M, was established on the site of what is now London, England, in about A.D. 43. Like Lundigum, it is located by a river, in this case, the Thames. 
Tom's Thames, whatever, T-H-A-M-E-S, um, it became a major port and commercial center in Roman Britain until it was abandoned by the Romans in the 5th century. And said the Romans created London. It was rolling open countryside before the Roman legions arrived. Um... It was strategic for trade purposes before the Roman. <clears throat> okay, now we get the interesting part here. Okay. Um, the Third Reich, meaning the Third Realm, because remember the Third Reich was the deal with Hitler, right? Okay, so the Third Reich, meaning the Third Realm, or Third Empire, alluded to the Nazis. So... The Nazis said that Nazi Germany was the successor to the earlier Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, <clears throat> according to them, was 800 to 1806. And the German Empire was 1871 to 1918. And remember, around that 1918 time frame was when the people of Germany were being, um, you know, what you call it, you know, starting to get starved, so. Okay, the Third Reich, Reich, which Hitler and the Nazis referred to as the Thousand-Year Reich, ended in March, excuse me, May of 1945, after just 12 years, when the Allies defeated Germany, ending World War II in Europe. So... Interesting stuff, right? They're claiming that the Holy Roman Empire ended in 1806, and uh, the German Empire seems to overlap because the German Empire is 1871, so I don't know what happened with those 60 years in between. So, um, so yeah, um, on January 1933, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany, the head of government, by the president of the Weimar Republic. The Nazi party then began to eliminate all political opposition. Okay, um, the Weimar Republic was the German state from 1918 to 1933 when it functioned as a federal constitutional republic. The state was was officially renamed the German Reich, okay, German Reich, and was also referred to as the German Republic. The first term refers to the city of Weimar, where the republic's consist where their first place took place. <laughs> In English, the country was usually simply called Germany. The term Weimar Republic did not become popular in English until the 1930s. Okay, so the Weimar Republic, we all know, had a horrible ending, right? So this is where the words get kind of tricky, right? So you're looking for Weimar Republic. <clears throat> you're also looking for German Republic. And this is how these things can get kind of tricky to sort out, right? So you look for those terms and you'll start to see how that trail got kind of crazy. But 
After four years of hostilities in World War I, from 1914 to 1918, with heavy losses, Germany was exhausted and sued for peace under desperate circumstances. We've already been there. Okay. Um, and it was between 1918 to 1923 the Weimar Republic suffered all their losses. Okay, and that's when they went in Germany through the hyperinflation political. Now, this happened. That didn't stop. Go back and listen to my show about Germany. But anyway, that didn't stop. Okay. Okay, by the end of March, the Reichstag Fire Decree and the Enabling Act of 1933. So they use some perceived acts. So they, they always, um, there's always some act that happens and they rush in with a solution, right? These patterns are quite obvious. So um, until the collapse of the Third Reich in 1943, the Nazis governed the German state under the pretense that all extraordinary measures and laws they brought into force, and starting with 1933, were legal and provisions of the Weimar Constitution. So yeah, this stuff get, can get quite a weedy here. So anyway, so I think you get the picture here. This is what they did, and this is how they intersected, right? Because they're, they're saying that the Holy Roman Empire was right before the German Empire. So here we go. What is the origin of the Roman Catholic Church? We're going to answer that question. The Roman Catholic Church contends that its origin is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in approximately AD 30. The Catholic Church proclaims itself to be the church that Jesus Christ died for, the church that was established and built by the apostles. Is that the true origin of the Catholic Church? On the contrary. Even a brief reading reveals that the Catholic Church does not have its origin in the teachings of Jesus. In the New Testament, there is no mention of the papacy, worship or adoration of Mary, praying to saints, apostolic succession, the ordinances of the church functioning as sacraments, infant baptism, confession of a sin to a priest, purgatory indulgences, or the equal authority of church tradition and scripture. If the origin of the Catholic Church is not in the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, then what is its true origin? For the first 280 years of Christian history, Christianity was banned by the Roman Empire, and Christians were terribly persecuted. This changed when Roman Emperor Constantine converted and provided religious toleration with the Edict of Milan, lifting the ban on Christianity. Constantine envisioned Christianity as a religion that could unite the Roman Empire. However, the results were anything but positive. The Christian church that Constantine and his successors promoted became a mixture of true Christianity and Roman paganism. Here are some examples. 
Most Roman Catholic beliefs and practices regarding Mary are completely absent from the Bible. Interestingly, the first hints of Catholic Mariology resemble Isis worship. The Lord's Supper being a conception of the literal body and blood of Jesus is not taught in the Bible. Roman Catholicism has saints one can pray to in order to gain a particular blessing. Nowhere is even a hint of this taught in scripture. The idea that the Roman bishop is the vicar of Christ, the supreme leader of the Christian church, is utterly foreign to the word of God. The supremacy of the Roman bishop, the papacy, was created with the support of Roman emperors. Eventually, the popes took on the title that had previously belonged to the Roman emperors, Pontifex Maximus. Many more examples could be given, recognizing that many of its beliefs and practices are utterly foreign to Scripture, the Catholic Church is forced to deny the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The origin of the Catholic Church is the tragic compromise of Christianity with the pagan religions that surrounded it. By blurring the differences and erasing the distinctions, the Catholic Church became the supreme religion in the Roman world for centuries. However, it also saw the most dominant form of Christianity. Christianity apostatizing from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the true proclamation of God's word. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That answers the question, what is the origin of the Roman Catholic Church? Research this question further on our website, gotquestions.org. Give a thumbs up and be sure to click subscribe. Meanwhile, check out these other questions. with these Roman folks, okay? I've already in another show talked about Romania and the Romans. I've also talked about the Roman Empire was right before the German Empire. The ancient Roman religion is one of the better known pagan, pagan religions, okay? And I have a section here about the pagan business, so I will skip past that here. Ancient Rome Empire, located along the Mediterranean Sea, was one of the largest empires in the ancient world, a region where art and culture thrived. Ancient Rome was home to numerous scholars, philosophers, warriors, artists, and painters to rep of repute. Um, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S, was not just a brave warrior, but also one of the most important Stoic philosophers of his era. His personal writings compiled in Meditations is considered to be a similar work of Stoic philosophy. 
Gaius Julius Caesar is another well-known political figure who was instrumental in shaping the history of ancient Rome. He played a vital role, that was Julius Caesar, in bringing about the decline of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. Ancient Romans were pioneers in several fields, including medicine. Agathinius, A-G-A-T-H-I-N-U-S, an eminent physician, was the founder of a new medical sect to which he gave the name of Esipikin, E-P-I-S-Y-N-T-H-E-T-I-C-I, the beginning of medicine while Antonius Musa, M-U-S-A, became famous for curing Emperor Augustus' serious malady, also famous as the land of intellectuals. Ancient Rome produced philosophers such as Aemilius Genilchius. I can't pronounce these. Just look for ancient Rome philosophers. <laughs> okay, gee, Rome seems to be kind of the central point here now, doesn't it appear that way to you? Romans is the name of subjects of the antique Roman Empire. They could have been anything from Syrians to Thracians to Iberians, Gauls, or Britons. They ceased to exist with the end of the Roman Empire. And of course, Latian, L-A-T-I-A-N, and any peninsular early... Excuse me. So this was early Italy. <laughs> early Italians were the Latians, okay? There are present-day Romans, which are inhabitants of the modern city of Rome. Okay, Rome is a large city in Europe and the capital of Italy. In comparison only to the extension of the Roman Empire, it is quite insignificant. Romanians, and I go into that more in this, Romanians are pretty close to the same root. They are descendants of the Romans of the later empire of Constantinople, of which it was their Latin mother tongue. The empire was named Romania in the antique documents, and the inhabitants were Romanian for the Latin word Romani. Okay, um, Romani is actually a very modern invention for the Indian migration population that used to be called gypsies in English. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> there's a lot here. Um, but yeah, it seems to me like this makes a great deal of sense because remember, um, there was a huge there would be there would have been a big Indian migration as the Brits or the UK was over there ripping them to shreds, right? So did those people getting ripped apart in India move over? Yeah, I mean it would make sense that they would get out of there, right? Because they've used those wars, famines and stuff to move us around every time they want to move people around. So okay. It is supposed that the Endermen Rome Romanical might have, in fact, the same origin as Romania or Romani, namely, when arrived in the Byzantine. Well, this gets too crazy, but some assume that a few gypsies who became educated or merchants and citizens of the empire 
tailored their own denomination that would indicate that they now that now they were no foreigners. Okay, so yeah, so these people could have changed the gypsies and the roms and all that stuff. Highly likely, right? This is all just one big trick. Okay. I wanted to know where the Roman Empire was on what we would think as the present day map, right? The Roman Empire was the post-Roman Republic period of the ancient Roman civilization characterized by a government government headed by emperors and large territorial holdings around the Mediterranean Sea in Europe, Africa, and Asia. What were the Romans most famous for? Well, 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 fast food. It seems that modern Romans, were, the ancient Romans were the first to introduce street stall, stalls and food on the move, as we might think of today as fast food. What else were they famous for? Advertising and trademarks. What else? Plumbing and sanitation. What else? Towns. What else? Architecture. What else? Roads. Well, and looky here, calendars. <laughs> they cooked up the calendars. Gee whiz. I wonder why we're having a little confusion over this. With a few. And also, and this is the final one here. What else did the Romans cook up but currency? <laughs> okay. It said the Holy Roman Empire was located in Western and Central Europe and included parts of what is now known as France, Germany, and Italy. <laughs> you know, I'll add this here. Um, there's these kids that have a channel and they go around to these old buildings and their channel is called The Proper People. And I talked about them in the past. And it just appears to me, you know, I could be, I could be just imagining this, but, you know, a lot of these... Um, horrific mental institutions a lot of them seem to be in, Ger in, in excuse me in Italy but another thing they noted because these kids are sharp when they were going through several of these buildings a couple of times they've noted things like this they say oh that's Italian tile here so inside of these horrific buildings there's evidence of Italian tiles and stuff just saying okay this is what got into my head because I just remembered this old saying that all roads lead to Rome right <laughs> Uh, let me see, where'd that come from? I played a clip about the roads, all roads leading to Rome, but um, this is different. It says, um, a version of the saying appears in this person's called, in this person book of parables with the words, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. And remember, Latin is their Roman language, right? I mean, how much more Roman can we get? It says, uh, it, it, it interprets to me, a thousand roads forever lead men to Rome. 200 years later, all roads lead to Rome emerges again in this person, Geoffrey, Geoffrey Chaucer, C-H-A-U-C-E-R's prologue, this prologue to the treatise on the astrolabe. Okay, it says, the starting quote, it says, Right as diverse path in laden the folks the right way to Rome. Yeah, all these roads lead to, all roads lead to Rome. So, yeah, I mean, really none of this stuff is hiding. It just it takes years of digging around. So. <laughs> and went on to say, um, 
We're not sure when all roads lead to Rome became entrenched in our everyday discourse, but its reference in popular culture points to sometime in the 20th century. <laughs> it might be thousands of years old, but this expression is alive and well as its sister Rome-orientated saying. Yeah, there's this other saying that's very popular, and it's carp diem. And when in Rome, those are also popular slogans. You know, I, I like these odd details, so just stick with me here. So yeah, it's funny that all roads lead to Rome, carpe diem, and when in Rome are very popular things. Uh, there was a film, All Roads Lead to Rome, with the title of a French comedy and, um, in 1949, and then there was a Canadian one in 2015. Uh, there was a TV episode of a Doctor Who serial, The Romans, which was set in ancient Rome. Um, all roads lead to Rome music. Um, and I'm also going to play, there's going to be a clip playing with music, and it'll be Roman music, rather aggressive sounding stuff, but it'll, it'll show up as, if, if just some music shows up, it'll be the Roman music. Okay, um, language. In eastern parts of the U.S., Americans say similar phrase. When you die, whether you go to hell or heaven, you have to change planes in Atlanta. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was looking at who were the Roman gods, okay. There was Jupiter, the king of gods. Jupiter, also known as Jove. The chief Roman deity, Jove. What was that? By Jove? Um, Neptune, the god of the sea. Pluto, the god of the underworld. Well, of course, right? Underworld, organized crime. <laughs> Apollo, the god of sun, music, and prophecy. Mars, the god of war. Cupid, the god of love. Saturn, the god of time, wealth, and agriculture. And their favorite one, Vulcan, the god of fire. The Roman Empire was an emperor was the Roman Empire was an emperor-run period of ancient Rome, which included strongholds and territories across Western Asia, Northern Africa, and various regions of oh, this is a good one I'm getting here. The empire was ruled by force and is famed for having the strongest army in the world at the time. The Romans were also significant for helping to develop various practices of law and government, the foundations of which shape these modern practices today. Similarly, the Roman Empire brought mass advances in the world of engineering and infrastructure as roads were laid, the first proper cities built, and an entire form of long-lasting architecture was developed. There were several major cities which were extremely important to the Roman Empire at the time. These nine cities, of course there's nine, each served a purpose in maintaining and strengthening the empire in their own way. That is Rome, Ephesus, E-P-H-E-S-U-S, -E Antioch, Carthage, Alexandria, Constantinople, 
Medialoma, Thessalonic, and Lundium. I talk about Lundium here because Lundium became Lundium became London. <laughs> uh, also, and these are all, of course, uh, tourist attractions. Attractions. Okay, I was looking at the ancient Roman Colosseum is one of the main tourist attractions in Europe. Um, which is now the capital of Italy, okay, the ancient Rome Colosseum, and it said Rome was also an important stronghold in the ancient empire. As the empire grew, the strength and power of Rome grew as well. The city was the center of the empire in many ways, and it was considered to be the strongest city in the world for more than 1,000 years. The location of Rome was significant in establishing its power and its place in the capital of the empire. Because it was located on the Italian peninsula and along the Tiber River, it has excellent access to trade in the form of the Mediterranean Sea. This location was later significant in a militant way, of course, and the sea and river access allowed Roman armies to send troops to conquer neighboring territories and land. Rome was also the center of the established government at the time, which was the hub of entertainment and society as it was. A number of ancient ruins can be found in modern Rome from which which form relics to this time, such as the Colosseum, and I'll be getting to this Colosseum here, I think, in a bit. <laughs> Boy, this Colosseum is something else with those fights and stuff. But anyways, um, okay. And you'll notice that these are all ruins, right? People get to go and pay to visit rocks and stuff that they've constructed and say that, oh, there was a building there, but look, come visit the ruins. <laughs> okay. The city of Ephesus, E-P-H-E-S-U-S, was an ancient port which served as an important trading post within the Mediterranean. It was originally a Greek city, but was later gifted to the Roman Empire after the death of King Attalos, A-T-T-A-L-O-S, the third, during Roman, oh, excuse me, during Roman rule, Ephesus was the capital of its Asian province, which it continued to be an important trading center. The city had a population of roughly 250,000 people during Roman rule. The city is also important in biblical times and was an important location for the development and spread of Christianity. Ephesus is now is now in modern-day Turkey near the town of Selk, S-E-L-C-U-K. This other thing is called Antioch. Okay, what is Antioch? I forget what this is. Okay, An oh, this is a good one. Antioch was another important city in the Roman Empire, A-N-T-I-O-C-H. It served, this is where you get all this Syrian stuff, right? They're all over there bombing in Syria and stuff. It served as a capital city of the Roman province of Syria and was the third largest city in the empire. 
not only was it one of the biggest, but it also held much more importance. Its location put it next to a bunch of trade routes, and this meant it was a strategic outpost for Romans. <clears throat> the place called Carthage. Um, it was taken over by the Romans during these Punic Wars. Um, I want to get down here to the... Um, Okay, the Roman amphitheater in Constantinople. I mean, you could go on this Roman stuff for... I, I could be here until, I don't know, the cows come home or... <laughs> um, but this one I wanted to talk about. The Roman amphitheater in Constantinople. Alexandria is generally thought of as the intellectual hub of the Roman Empire. Researchers, mathematicians, and philosophers were plentiful here. And the city was one of the largest in the empire, second only to Rome. The city was an important one in Egyptian and Roman history and was thought to be one of the most intellectually advanced areas of the time. Remnants of the great Alexandria Library can be found, as well as ancient ruins on the banks of Egypt, though many of them may have sunk below sea level. Okay. Um... There's this other thing, um, Con Constantinople is my now modern-day Turkey, uh, and that was where they were, Constantinople was the Roman capital of the East, okay, it, allegedly. It, its location served as a gateway city between Exocese and the Mediterranean. It was on both the Silk and Spice Roads, and as such was an important trading post of the late Roman Empire. The idea that this city was that it would serve as a new Rome, okay? So they considered Turkey as a new Rome, okay? And its success in train helped it to quickly grow in opulence and riches. As the Roman Empire shifted eastward, <coughs> As the Roman Empire shifted eastward, the city became more and more important, and eventually the emperor of Constantinople became the ruler of the entire empire. In modern day, the city is now Istanbul, the largest city in Turkey. Yeah, so that kind of explains their fascination with Turkey, right? Okay. Um, I don't know if this one makes... Let me see if I highlight anything. Oh, there's all these other places. Let me get to... I already talked about Londinium, which is now London, okay? And also, I had talked before in that show I did about photos and stuff because running through London are these walls, okay? And what they are, supposedly, they're ancient remains of an old Roman city walls. And it's called Barbican, B-A-R-B-I-K-E. C-A-N estate in London, okay? And supposedly this wall was built to protect the Roman settlement of Lundium, which is London, in the 2nd and 3rd century. Lundium, or Roman London, was the capital of Roman Britain. And they call it Roman Britain. And I have a segment about Roman Britain, so I'm going to go with, I've covered all this information there, because... It's interesting that, you know, and that is, of course, where the city of London is, right? Okay. 
the Roman Empire and the Vatican, okay? This was a piece from 2018, actually from the Vatican itself, okay? The Vatican, or they also call it the Holy See, okay? And go look more at that Vatican because they have these strange old rooms in the Vatican. I don't know if I have the name of it here, where the Pope talks in this room, and the room he's talking in is the head of a serpent, like a snake, snake's head. So, yeah, there's a lot to this Holy See business. <laughs> um, it's this, the Vatican, or the Holy See, that's S-E-E, -E, is the seat of authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, how much more obvious can this get? It's not just the Catholic Church, it's the Roman Catholic Church. But what exactly I was looking at is a connection between the Roman Empire and the Vatican, or the Roman Catholic Church. And it, uh, this answer I found was... Well, ranging from its language to its structure, and of course its name, the Roman Catholic Church borrowed many characteristics from the Roman Empire and in some way kept many as aspects of the ancient Rome alive until today. Yeah, I mean, how obvious can it be, right? The Roman Catholic Church is referred to as such because its adherents are in common with the Pope of Rome, leader of the Catholic Church. Ever since the Christianization of the Roman Empire, the 4th century AD, the Catholic Church has used the language, terminology, and structure of the Roman Empire. The Latin language was the language of ancient Rome. The Catholic Church and its leader, based in the city of Rome itself, with theologians and bishops spread in other areas, then ruled the Roman Empire and used Latin as their first language of communicating and writing, as a language for issuing documents, and ultimately as a primary an exclusive language used for prayer. <laughs> this preserved in church and Vatican history until the late 20th century, when during Vatican II, the church officially allowed other languages to be used in liturgy. So yeah, until the late 20th century, which is about the time for we are right now, right? This stuff, believe it or not, I mean, this... this it's taken me a long time to get my head going on, so I'm just trying to pull you out experts that I won't spin you off into, into, into the rabbit hole with. Um, the relationships between ancient Rome and the Holy See is deeper than simply the use of Latin. The city of Rome is thought of as the center of the world, and it became the center of Western Christianity. The Roman Empire became the model for its structure. Well, and somewhere in here, I'm, I start talking about um, all these early pagan, all these early places uh, that the Romans had became Christian churches and stuff, right? Um, the Roman Empire became the model for its structure. The Pope who resides in Rome is also called the Supreme Pontiff. 
This title, which can be found on official Vatican documents and on church and Vatican buildings around Rome, is often shortened to Pont, P-O-N-T, Max, M-A-X, that was actually used, that, that was actually, this Pont Max, was an official title used by the head of, of the College of Priests in ancient Rome. <laughs> Even the famous, and of course not Christian, Julius Caesar held the title of Pontiff Maximum in Rome. Same thing as the dude now, right? Pontifus Maximus, Supreme Pontiff. Okay. Um, the Gnostic, the similarity of the College of Priests of the Roman Empire and the Vatican's Colon, excuse me, okay, here's a similarity here. <laughs> the um, College of Priests of the Roman Empire and the Vatican's College of Cardinals, they both elect the Pope. The organizational structure of the church and its base is called Cita del Vaticano, which means Vatican City is also built on ancient Roman models. Funny, huh? all, these, all these things are built on Russian thi uh, Roman things, right? Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, territorial refer references are d divided into parishes, dioceses, and provinces. These divisions and subdivisions of large areas, districts, and neighborhoods, which are still in use today by the church, are territorial references used in ancient Rome for secular purposes. In its early days, the Western church was seeking growth in a world speaking Latin, and very importantly, a world in which the titles of rulers and religious leaders were in Latin. By adopting these titles and structures, Catholic Christianity offered the people of ancient Rome, people who gave great importance to traditions and history, something to relate to. Roman Catholicism offered them a new faith in familiar terms. Well, another question, because, I don't know, somewhere floating around in my brain were, you know, gladiator fights and stuff. I, I, I don't know where I got this from, but okay. So I, I asked this question. Here's the thing. If you're just looking to do questions, just ask the question and see what your answer is, right? So this was the answer I got. Because my question was, did the Roman Republic commit any atrocities? <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a loose open question, if you ask me. Anyway, so. The answer was, where to begin? The reality is that an, as impressive as Roman civilization was, it ex, ex, existed around two millennial before the first Geneva Convention. The ancient world was not all that friendly a place. The image of all humans prior to the modern age as savages is, of course, absurd. But international law and the very concept of an atrocity based of an atrocity barely existed back in the time yeah so there was um, what they're saying is international law and the, these these it was very brutal okay let me just let me just keep moving I'm tired okay 
it was very brutal, okay? So, um, what they're trying to say here was there were no international laws back then, so yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. When it came to punishing criminals, enemies, and anyone else they didn't like, the Romans were brutal and cruel. Here's a few of the punishments. I found a list of them. Um, mass crucifixion. In situations such as slave results, the Romans would often mass crucify thousands and thousands together. Didn't they do the same thing in Germany? Yeah, well, see, the patterns persist. Okay, they had this thing called dissemination. Dissemination was a punishment given to legionnaires for severe breaches of discipline, the most common cause being if they fled the field of battle. Each cohort would be split into groups of ten, each drawing strings. Whoever drew the short straw would be, then be beaten to death by one of the other nine. So people would then beat each other. See, this is where I've, I've said this for a long time. You know, they got us to watch each other beating each other in the face, and that was where we started. And uh, I'm not going to go there right now. Okay, so. Okay. Um, yeah, so they got people beating each other up. So buried alive was another trick they had. The Vestal Virgins were a group of virgins who had an oath of chastity to the goddess Vesta, V-E-S-T-A. These oaths would be taken incredibly seriously, so much that if you were so foolish as to break it, you would be buried alive. To go into a little more detail, they were locked in pits underground and left to starve to death. Aren't these people just wonderful? Okay. And you do realize that people actually write these stories up, cook them up. Okay. There's also this thing they, they do called the penalty of the sack. <clears throat> it's called Peniel Code. And for Latin, it means penalty of the sack. It was the legal punishment for patricide. That, that the punishment, patricide means if you murder your father. And consisted of being sewn up in a leather sack with live dogs, snakes, monkeys, chickens, or roosters, and then being forced into water. The river timber most often was when the punishment was carried out in Rome itself to drown. Another thing, slavery. This one probably goes without saying, but still needs mentioning. The Roman economy was completely reliant on slavery. Okay, um, there were millions of them. A rich man could have in the thousands of slaves, while most families had some. They were considered property and often treated incredibly harshly by their masters. It should be mentioned this was not at all unique to Rome. There were atrocities and, yeah, okay, okay. Brutal conquests. Roman conquests were brutal utterly brutal. The Roman economy was, for much of its history, fueled by conquest. Where did this money come from? Brutally looting and plundering any regions that, that resisted occupation. Entire cities were often razed to the ground. Carthage being the most famous example where, not content with just victory, they destroyed totally the entire city with some antidote saying they 
They sowed salt in the fields to stop anything from growing again. And they said this is maybe not likely true. Well, pretty vindictive people. Okay. Um, they talk about this Gaelic war that Julius Caesar invaded Gaul. Uh, modern day France. I don't know. Killed a bunch of people. And it went on to say that everything's always going to be okay, right? It says, the Roman Empire achieved many great things, but was not without its atrocities. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, and I was looking because of this thing with the mafia. You know, our entire structure is based on the mafia, okay? The cops play the robbers. <laughs> so... Uh, so, of course, I've been looking into uh, anybody else suspicious about the Mafia and the um, Romans, right? And I did find some other people commenting on it, so I'll tell you what they said. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, the Roman Republic achieved many great... But now there are many similarities between the Mafia and the Roman Empire. So, what they have to say... The Roman Empire that followed was closer to the idea of a mafia organization applied to a national level. The emperor was the equivalent of a godfather and you were supposed to show him respect if you knew what was good for you. The entire empire can be seen as a big and somewhat successful protection racket with the Roman army serving as enforcers of the will of the local capos, you know, the mafia guys, right? The whole setup was designed to keep commerce and civil society thriving to ensure the family gets its fair cut of the take. What is this all about? Well, they claw back everything they have. They have the mafia running the Teamsters. <laughs> so, yes. My view, 100% which makes sense for all the brutality is that our entire structure and I can only speak for the United States this is in fact a mafia run organization okay so um, then I also looked at what was the underlying cause for the collapse of the Roman Republic the Roman Republic was a competitive forum where different aristocratic factions competed for power and influence through public service. Um, one of the impressive achievements of the Republic was the long role of dictators. Yeah, I'm a little bit confused here, so I'm going to skip by this part. I had it marked out, but I'm, I'm tired. I'm confused. So, um, so you know, the whole thing is all of this Roman history um, okay you know the Roman history became the Germans you know what I mean then it became the Americans and um, let me see um, I was looking at um, literacy um, Considering, okay, it's hard to give an accurate estimate of literacy, but considering that nobility usually made up more than, see, the nobility back then, and this is why I was looking at this, because, you know, they talk about the 1% here, right? And 
I'll put in a segment here of who these nobility people are, just so I have this whole file wrapped into one piece. So, um, so they said that the nobility used to be 5% of ancient populations, okay? Um, but I don't know about any of that. I, I think it's probably a lot less now that the population is higher, but not important for right here. So let's keep moving along here. in Washington, D.C. Quite the sneaky little people, but this is who they are. Washington, D.C. is separated from ancient Rome by an ocean thousands of miles in about 1,600 years, but Rome dominates Washington's architectural character more than any, almost any other major city. A tour of Washington's most prominent landmarks makes it clear that the American city was a product of a deliberate, concerted effort to emulate the capital of the Roman Empire. Um, and it's controversial because uh, contemporary... I don't know why this has to do with Donald Trump. I don't really care, but okay. Um, the influence supposedly began decades before the American Revolution in Europe. As a neoclassical movement gathered steam in reaction to the ornate vanity extravagance and autocracy of French King Louis' court, Americans were far from the only opponents of autocratic kings who lived who lived in splendor. Well, okay, they just live in splendor, hiding as the mafia and uh, tech executives, right? So, okay, the winds of political reform blew across Europe and into Asia, as growing modernizing countries reconsidered the basis on which they wanted to be government. The Age of Enlightenment emphasized nature and simplicity that were antithesis to the elaborate royal courts, and the Industrial Revolution stressed efficiency, invention, and science over hierarchy. Well, some things just don't ever quite change, do they? We still have a hierarchy system. <laughs> we're still in a caste system. Okay, discoveries of ancient Roman ruins um, such as Pompeii and Herculaneum in the same era sent explorers scurrying to those and other sites in search of ancient objects that aristocrats purchased to display in their homes. <laughs> Some of these elite built new Roman-style homes. So yeah, they because they discovered these things in Pompeii, supposedly, and Herculaneum, okay? And then, of course, that sends them out scurrying for more, right? Then they can sell us replicas. They can print them on T-shirts. It is endless. It is endless. Okay. 
So what they do is how this trick works is they make it popular for the elites to have them. So the rest of us might think, oh, I got to have that too. Got to have that too. So they sell us the replicas. This is how the whole scam works, right? Uh, and you see that right now, uh, all these houses they're building right now to display their wealth, these farm eruptions stuff, they're all <laughs> Grecian, or excuse me, Roman, Roman style. So, okay, they stock their libraries with books about the discoveries, many of which included drawings and etches. Yes, of course, drawings and etches were all we had until what? Photos? <laughs> Doling out the stuff? Many went on grand tours of Italy, visiting museums, ancient sites, and Renaissance museums. Didn't um, Randolph Hearst supposedly, I did actually do a tour of the um, Hearst Museum in California, and he went on these major tours buying up all this gilded garbage, right? Okay, so... So what happens is people see these people going around having grand tours of Italy, visiting these museums, and then they haul this stuff back, okay? So, uh, the movement called Neoclassicism came to dominate new architecture as architects interpreted ancient Roman architecture in their designs. The first neoclassical structures in Italy were built in the 1730s, and the movement flourished, well, because that, that's when they took over Italy. So the movement flourished in the second half of the century while the United States was being established. Because neoclassicism caught on all over Europe and the Americas, it was considered international. It spread to fashion with women wearing tunic-style clothing, and Greek and Roman hairstyles. Further influenced by ancient forms became fashionable, along with rooms with Roman-style relief sculptures, vases, marble sculptures, and fireplaces topped with Roman-style temple fronts. Yeah, you'll see those Roman statues like all over the place, okay? Scholars, archaeologists, architects, and political leaders looked to the Roman past to figure out what made a great civilization. There is, let me read this quote here. There is one way for the moderns to become great and perhaps unequaled by imitating the ancients, wrote German historian Johann Wickman. In his 1755 book, Thoughts on the Imitation of Greek Works in Painting and Sculpture. Wickman's History of Art of Antiquity, published in 1764, was immensely influential in this movement to create a distant, lost, ideal word of pastoralism with a white marble Greek temple. <laughs> okay, this part is really good here, okay. Um... The style became associated with the clamor for political reform as Greek and Roman motifs were repurposed to express the ideals of enlightened government, justice, and reforms. The movement produced one of the most prominent and iconic architectural styles of the Western world. Americans became obsessed with neoclassicism as Rome at the time was the only example 
of a major republic in Western history. So yeah, as they debated the form that the new republic would take place, they shared Roman texts and ideas. Thomas Jefferson included Roman ideas of government in the De Declaration of Independence. Some days it's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> it was a government that drew on ancient models to reform politics, protect individuals, and constrain tyranny. Well, we're in a dual world, so I would say the opposite. Americans positioned themselves in the tradition of ancient Greeks and Romans who had debated and developed principles of justice, rule of law, liberty, limited government, and due process. Jefferson was an architect greatly, and he greatly admired both Roman Republic values and architecture, which to him epitomized the simplicity, grandeur, balance, and social ideas of the new nation. He modeled his designs for the Virginia State Capitol building on the Maiz Carrere, that's C-A-R-R-E-E-E, -E, a first century B.C. Roman temple in France, and built his house, Monticello, in neoclassical style. Jefferson became a key figure. Jefferson became a key figure in linking new American ideals of government with ancient Rome visual concepts. The Founding Fathers detested the British monarchy, but they were far from turning their backs on the past. Indeed, they believed that there were universal truths that could be discovered in the, collect in the collective wisdom of antiquity and shape for their own political goals. These ideas could lead cultural stability to the fledgling government. No, it's actually the, just the explanation they're giving us for why everything is Roman, right? <laughs> they have to come up with a good backstory, right? Neoclassical architecture provided visual stability, grandeur, and public space for the... I think I already read that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, what else did I have down here? Let me see here. Um, the American interest in antiquity also encompass the broader history of the ancient Mediterranean as archaeologists, 19th century scholars, and visitors made Cleopatra, the pyramids, the sphinx, mummies, and obelisks part of the American culture. Okay, so the American interest in antiquity also encompass the broader history. So, yeah, so the obelisks, 19th century, became popular. Neoclassicism held that art should express ideal. Yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, this is interesting here. Battles, processions, and other historical events were preferred topics of neoclassical paintings. This is, this, the reason I zoned in on this was this, because you know, they started to influence us with all these ideas, right? Did any of these battles take place? Well, I don't know. That's not my point here. The point is they started bringing into our psyche all of these things, how they won all these battles, okay? Because they won all these battles, that's how they got in charge of stuff. So it's, it was interesting to me that battles, processions, and other historical events were preferred topics of neoclassical paintings with figures arranged in pyramidal groupings with lighter faces. 
Why do you think they call it the White House? <laughs> okay, storm clouds, battlefield smoke, and a sense of drama and sacrifice permeated these works. Sculptures of the neoclassical era portrayed George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and other founding fathers as models of truth, nature, simplicity, and grace. And also women. <laughs> the dickless wonders. Okay. These portraits were reproduced in textbooks, copies, and on stamps, and coins until they dominated the public perception of these men. Now, I did that whole show about photos and stuff because quite a few of these characters, we only have paintings. There's no pictures, conveniently. So I'm not convinced that all these people really existed, okay? Um, they provided a visual pantheon of heroes to go along with the new political order. Washington, this is a this is a new segment here, okay, I, you know, I have all these files, and when I started looking into the Roman stuff, you know, I've been, you know, on this trail for a number of years, I pulled up all these Roman files, so some of them will, it'll appear like there's some consequence to each segment, but there's not, <laughs> so, okay, Washington, D.C. has more public buildings, buildings look classic, and they, I think I already said that, the Irish poet Thomas More called the city, meaning Washington, D.C., the modern Rome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Rome, Roman city planning with its emphasis on a central forum, main wide boulevards, occasional diagraphic seat. There's also something about the city streets represent some satanic symbol, um, the six-sided thing. Um, Okay, this is what I was looking at here, um, because, yeah, this whole, um, and that's what a lot of these uh, people, these Tartaria people are talking about, star for No, it just, they just do symbolism. Nothing more complicated than that, okay? Before Washington, D.C. was built in 1790, the area was sparsely settled countryside, okay, but this French architect Pierre Leofade, and I don't, I think I talked about Pierre in another segment, but, I, um, but anyway, Lafont came up with this plan, 1791 plan, okay, um, and the buildings were deliberately modeled on ancient Roman temples, okay, um, so look up that guy because that gets really intense, um, it's L. E N F A N T T is the French architect. He lived in Versailles from age four. Well, of course, he was a brilliant child protege, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was the one who came up with all the public buildings and neoclassical. The I mean, this stuff just screams in your face once you start looking. <laughs> There's this word that when you learn something you start to see it everywhere well that's really uh, the case for some things but really this is in fact once you start looking it is everywhere i think i talked about this before but just in case in one of the other segments uh, i'll go ahead and say it here because i'm talking about washington dc the construction of the capital began in 17... Yeah, I did talk about this. There was some contest, okay? Because they wanted the building to be a replica of an ancient Roman temple after the Roman pantheon. 
so yeah, I mean, I don't know how much more Roman this stuff can get. Um, um, I don't know. It, it looks to me like this whole thing is built on Roman architecture um, because we've got the, um, yeah, you got all these buildings. I mean, just go look at them. Uh, then you've got the, uh, the Washington Monument is a simple tapered stone obelisk with a pyramid top. See, they use these <laughs> on, on top of those obliques, okay? They use, they put like a little pyramid on the top, okay? And it was inspired by ancient Egyptian architecture. This structure, the Washington Monument I'm talking about, was completed in 1884. And that is the tallest sculpture in Washington, D.C. So... I think there's some rule about nothing can be any taller than that. But yeah, go look at the like the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, total uh, neoclassical building. Okay, it has limit. It has a, and they also have Martin Luther King there, which is I have a dream lies. Okay, um, and look closer at these things. I'm not convinced that they're sculptures. I'm convinced that the replica. They they just do resin pours. Okay. Um, so, um, the Library of Congress, it says that Greek and Roman influence in images of American freedom is pervasive. Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom in battle, can be seen in American patriotic art, as can Columbia, the goddess-like personification of the spirit of America. There are statues of George Washington dressed as a Roman Empire. Yes, these things are just like shooting barrel, fish in a barrel to find once you start looking. <laughs> the bald eagle, now this explains why that eagle is all over the place, right? Okay, the bald eagle is the national animal and a prominent political symbol of freedom. The Romans used the eagle as a symbol of strength for their supreme god Zeus. Z-E-U-S. Okay, so that, that explains that eagle, right? The Statue of Liberty, a gift from France in 1886, is Libertas, the Roman goddess of liberty. The United States has so many neoclassical courthouses that the style columns and statues represent injustice. So yeah, just look around, kids. I mean... Okay, this says, um, a popular image in statues is a blindfolded lady of justice holding a set of balances in one hand and a sword in the other to represent that justice is not prejudice. This personification of justice comes from the Greek titan Titanus named Themis, T-H-E-M-I-S, that idea of justice. You know, that lady with the two scales. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. They're talking about some order here, and I'm confused by it. Okay, so, yeah, the city, the, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty also has those seven spikes in their head. Okay. This was, why I have this, I don't know, a tale, <clears throat> excuse me, a tale of two Roman cities. The amphitheaters, military garrisons, forums, 
trade and craft shops of two Roman colonial cities have emerged from the dust. Okay, let me scroll down here. Somehow, at some point, I found this interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I was looking at this. I'll have to just keep moving along here. But yeah, um, I would look <laughs> look around. <laughs> the Romans, <laughs> the Romans are the ones in charge. So obviously, they have a pretty strong imprint on all these buildings. So here we go now. Washington, D.C. is the capital and one of the most visited city in the United States. In this video, we are going to show you the evolution of Washington, D.C., from its early discovery, up to the modern city of today. But before anything else, please consider subscribe for more interesting videos. In the early days, various tribes of the Algonquian-speaking Piscataway people inhabited the area around the Potomac River. In 1699, conflicts between European colonists and neighboring tribes forced the relocation of the Piscataway people. In 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, which approved the creation of a national capital on the Potomac River. The exact location was to be selected by President George Washington, who signed the bill into law on July 16. In 1791, the three commissioners overseeing the capital's construction, and named the city in honor of President George Washington. Congress passed the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1801, which officially organized the district, and placed the entire territory under the exclusive control of the federal government. In 1814, British forces invaded the capital during the War of 1812. The capital, treasury, and White House were burned and gutted during the attack. Most government buildings were repaired quickly. In 1861, in the outbreak of the American Civil War, led to the expansion of the federal government and notable growth in the district population. In 1870, the district population had grown 75% from the previous census to nearly 132,000 residents. Despite the city growth, Washington still had dirt roads and lacked basic sanitation. In 1871, Congress passed the Organic Act of 1871, which repealed the individual charters of the cities of Washington and Georgetown, and created a new territorial government for the whole District of Columbia. In 1873, presidential appointed governor of Washington Alexander Roby Shepard, authorized a large-scale projects that greatly modernized the city of Washington. In 1888, the first motorized streetcars began service, and generated growth in the city of Washington. In 1900, the district was the first city in the nation to undergo urban renewal projects as part of the City Beautiful movement. In 1930, the increased federal spending, led to the construction of new government buildings, memorials, and museums in the district. During World War II, Due to the increased government activity, federal employees in the capital reached its peak of 802,178 residents. Today, Washington is home to many government offices, national monuments, and museums.
The city also houses many foreign embassies, as well as the headquarters of many international organizations, such as the World Bank Group, the International Monetary Fund, the International Finance Corporation, and the American Red Cross. So guys, what do you think the future of Washington DC? Britain and the Roman provinces in Europe. 
Scraps of armor, leather straps, and military stamps on buildings suggest that the site was constructed by the city's legionnaires. Major imports included fine pottery, jewelry, and wine. Only two large warehouses are known, implying that Londinium was a bustling trade center rather than a supply depot and distribution center. It, it had only a modest forum at first, which had, has been excavated. It had an open courtyard with a basilica and several shops around it. So yeah, the, the, okay. the basilica would have been where law cases were held and the local senate met. It also had a shrine in it. So yeah, um, this Londinium, if you're from the UK, you might really dig into this because it's quite a deal, okay? And what they said, um, archaeologists spent a century of searching for the amphitheater before it was found in 1988 behind Guildhall, G-U-I-L-D-H-A-L-L -L yard. After the Romans left Britain in the 4th century, <clears throat> excuse me, many of the amphitheater stones were carried off for use in other structures. <clears throat> yeah, they always have to have a reason why this stuff kind of disappears, right? Okay, so let me get back here. After the Romans left Britain in the 4th century, many of the amphitheater stones were carted off for use in other structures. It lie in ruins until the 12th century when the area was reoccupied and the guild hall was built. The remains of the amphitheater are in the Guildhall Art Gallery basement. They put a lot of this stuff in basements, okay? So, um, that includes, supposedly, the original walls, draining system, and sand, which was used to soak up blood from wounded gladiators. I talk about gladiators in one of these segments, so... Uh, the same brutal people that were doing the gladiator things are the one in charge now, newsflash, okay? Um, there is no surviving source that indicates Londinium was the Roman capital of Britain, but archaeological evidence indicates that it was. So, I, I don't know. So, you know, they're always digging this stuff up, right? And then they actually just do reconstruction. So, I'm not going to get too heavily invested in all this stuff here, okay? And so, you know, in this museum, they have all of this, you know, wonderful pottery and all this stuff that they cooked up. And, um, yeah, I, I'm just scanning through here to see if there's anything else worth going over because um, this is the stage of a, this is all staged and we're also in a active crime scene. Okay, here's one I wanted to talk about. There are many Roman ruins under London. Understanding them can be difficult because it's hard to differentiate Roman gravel roads from natural rock. Remains from wooden structures are minimal and easily missed, and stone from stone buildings were reused after the Roman period. What a shame, right? The first extensive archaeological view of the Roman city was done in the 17th century after the Great Fire of 1666. 
it revealed that there was no evidence for the belief that St. Paul's had been built over a Roman temple to the goddess Diana. Extensive rebuildings of London in the 19th century and after World War II bombing uncovered many Roman ruins. The construction of the London Coal Exchange led to the discovery of a Roman house in 1848. In 1947, the city's northwest fortress of the Roman city garrison was discovered. In 1947, that was. In 1954, evacuations of what was thought to have been an early church revealed the London Mithraeum, and I'll spell that M-I-T-H-R-A-E-U-M. Archaeologists began the first intensive evacuation of the waterfront sites of London, Rome in the 1970s. They're even calling it London, Rome, right? Another phase of archaeological work followed deregulation of the London Stock Exchange in 1896. Well, that whole stock exchange, that whole thing about Brexit, that was just robbery. Um, so, major finds from Roman London include mosaics, wall fragments, and old buildings are housed, they're housed, excuse me, in the Museum of London and Museum of London Docklands a separate building dealing with the history of London ports. Other artifacts from Roman London are held by the British Museum. Roman era sketches of the city are visible near Town Hill Station in a hotel courtyard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well there you go, right? Uh, there's this thing about, oh, I don't know. There's all these things about all these, you know, some of them, they have their arms missing. Anyways, I think you get the picture about what they're calling Roman London, right? So here we go. Seven metres below the streets of the City of London, a Roman temple dating from nearly 1800 years ago. This was a very special, sacred, religious place um, where people came and they performed their, their rituals, probably had a bit of bonding with each other and, and you know, a bit of a chat. This is a reconstruction of the Temple of Mithras. It's been put back at its original site after a near 60-year hiatus. The remains of a Roman temple have been uncovered near the mansion house in the city of London. This was when it was originally found at a bombsite in London in the 50s. Such a rare find garnered much media and public attention. When the ruin was first discovered in 1954, there was lots of debate about what to do with it. Eventually, it was dismantled and moved away to make way for essential building work, but it was reconstructed at a car park around 100 metres away from here, but it was put together somewhat inaccurately. 
When the company Bloomberg acquired the original Mithras site, it committed to putting the temple back in its rightful place underneath its new planned building. A team of archaeologists spent four years excavating the land before creating a more faithful reconstruction of the temple. Archaeologists are used to taking things apart, not putting things back together, so it really was a big challenge. But we, we were really, really fortunate because the original excavation drawings were excellent and because there'd been so much interest in this discovery in 1954, we actually had a lot of material to, to, to work with. See, here's a brooch that has a lot of decoration with the chains. In addition, more than 600 of the artefacts discovered during the dig are now on display, revealing new things about the origins of London. We have a writing tablet that is the first record we have of the term Londinium, the name London. We have the first financial transactions known in the city of London. So just the study of the writing tablets has yielded a tremendous amount of new scholarship and information. Mithras was perhaps the most famous Roman discovery in 20th century London. It's hoped it will once again be a leading attraction connecting us to the capital's past. Okay, let's look at Rome and Romania with such an obviously sounding name. I've been talking about Romania for a long time. It's, you know, of course, let's put it this way. I'm just going to tell you what is supposedly known and being talked about it. And some people are like, no, they're not the same. But here's what I understand the likelihood, okay? Romania was the name of the Roman Empire, later known or identified by the Westerners as East Roman Empire, and later Byzantine Empire after the conquering by the Turks. From Constantine time until the city of Byzantine was renamed Constantinople, Constantinople 324 and the capital of Romania was moved there. The Roman Empire shifted to the east to better protect from Persia and later from Arabian and Turk invasions until 1453, 1,129 years later. The empire citizen were called Romans in English. Romania until 1453 was the land of Romanians in Romanian with different names in Romani, Rumani, and uh, something else. <laughs> in Greek, they are called Romanoi, R-O-M-A-N-O-I, regardless if they were of Greek origin or Latin. Their term Romani is Romanian, and that can mean the, these things. It can mean Romans, citizens of the Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire. It can mean Romans, inhabitants of the modern city of Rome, Italy. It can mean Romans, the Gypsy or Roma language, or language from the Indo-Aryan branch of the Indo-European languages spoken by Gypsies. Paul's epistle to the Romans, also called Romans, that's, that's actually, I think I have it, I have it here somewhere. Um, the Roman, there's a part in the Bible called Romans, 
referring to Roman citizens residing in Rome, but also in Anatolia, Greece, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Dalmatia, Dacia, Peonia, Tobalia, and Panoia. So anyway, so yeah, it seems like these people are Romans, right? Their term Romani is used for the Romanis of current Romania. But from the period since 107, oh, this gets too complicated. Okay, so yeah, I think, I think, I have no way of verifying this, but it seems to make a lot of sense that Romania connects to Rome, okay? <laughs> so, um, the Roman component of Romanian culture is the main pillar on which Romanian history, culture, mentality, and worldview has been constructed. This Roman component is also responsible for drawing all Rom Roma Romanians closer to each other and making the unification of the Romanian provinces possible. This is not me talking, this is them. We are all descendants mainly of the Daco-Roman Latin population which inhabited Romanian lands prior to and also after the Slav-Kuman migrations around the 6th to 11th centuries. That's why also there was, there was never a chance of a Romanian civil war during the 90s as occurred, I mean, I think this is, a, let me back up here a second. They're trying to explain this person is saying that also why there was never a chance of a Romanian civil war during, occurring in the 90s as occurred in Yugoslavia because we all speak the same language, have the same history and origins and the same traditions and religion. All of these aspects were supported by the strong Roman Latin pillar onto which other aspects of our culture have been constructed. I'm continuing to read in their voice. That is not to say that there are no cultural influences dating back to the Slavs or the Mygars, but these are secondary influences built on top of our common Daco-Roman ancestry. So it's not that we prefer to consider ourselves Romans. It is mostly that the Roman component of our history has tied us all together and made modern-day Romania possible. So yeah, it sounds to me like it's the same, but hey, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, sometimes you just have to go with what seems logical, right? So let's keep rolling. Vatican City. 
capital of the Catholic Church, home to the Pope, owner of impressive collections of art and history all contained within the borders of the world's smallest country, conveniently circumnavigatable on foot in only 40 minutes. Just how did the world end up with this tiny nation? The short answer is because Mussolini, and the long answer is fiendishly complicated, so here's a simplified medium version. The popes used to rule a country called the Papal States that covered much of modern-day Italy. It was during this thousand-plus year reign that the popes constructed St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the world, and also built a wall around the base of a hill known as Vatican, upon which St. Peter's stood. But the Kingdom of Italy next door thought Rome would make an awesome capital for their country, and so conquered the Papal States. His destroyed, the Pope hid behind the walls of Vatican and conflictingly refused to acknowledge that the Kingdom of Italy existed while simultaneously complaining about being a prisoner of the Kingdom of Italy, which according to him didn't exist. Rather than risk religious civil war by getting rid of the Pope, the Kingdom of Italy decided to wait him out, assuming he'd eventually give up. But religion is nothing if not obstinate, and one, two, three, four, five popes, and 60 years later, nothing had changed. Which now brings us to Benito Mussolini, the then Prime Minister of Italy, who was tired of listening to the Pope complain to Italian Catholics about his self-imposed imprisonment, so Mussolini thought he could score some political points by striking a deal which looked like this. One, Italy gave the land of Vatican to the Pope, and two, Italy gave the Pope a bunch of apology money. In return, the Pope acknowledged that Italy existed, and two, the Pope promised to remain neutral in politics and wars, on the off chance that, you know, Mussolini thought this might be a thing. The deal was signed in a new country, Vatican City was born, and today the tiny nation on a hill has all the things you'd expect of a country. It's own government that makes its own laws that are enforced by its own police who put people who break them in its own jail. It also has its own bank and prints its own stamps and issues its own license plates, though only its citizens can drive within its borders, presumably because of the terrible, terrible parking. And as the true mark of any self-respecting nation, it has its own top-level domain, .va. But despite all these national trappings, Vatican City is really not like any other country. Hold on to your fancy hat, because it's about to get weird. To understand the Vatican, there are two people and two things you need to know about. The famous Pope, the incredibly confusing Holy See, the country of Vatican City, and along with that, the almost completely unknown King of Vatican City. But first, the Pope, who gets a throne to sit upon, and from which he acts as the bishop for all the Catholics in Rome. Actually, all bishops in the Catholic Church get their own thrones, but because the bishop of Rome is also the Pope, his throne is special and has its own special name, the Holy See. Every time a Pope dies or retires, there is a sort of Game of Thrones to see which of the bishops will next get to occupy the Holy See. So while Popes come and go, the throne is eternal, and as such, the name the Holy See not only refers to the throne, but also all the rules that make the Catholic Church the Catholic Church. When Mussolini crafted that aforementioned deal, technically he gave the land of Vatican City to the Holy See, which, believe it or not, is a legal corporate person in international law. Basically, every time you hear the words the Holy See, think Catholic Church Incorporated, of which the Pope is the CEO. Now, back to the King. The King of Vatican City has absolute unchecked power within the country's borders, and his presence makes Vatican City one of only six remaining absolute monarchies in the world, including Brunei, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Swaziland. The King's absolute power is why Vatican City can't join the European Union because only democracies are allowed. Though Vatican City does, strictly speaking, have a legislative branch of government staffed by cardinals appointed by the Pope, the King of Vatican City can overrule their decisions at any time for any reason. So why do you never hear about 
about the king of Vatican City? Because though king and pope are two different roles, they just happen to be occupied by the same person at the same time. Which has the funny consequence that, because the pope is elected and the king is all-powerful but they're the same guy, it makes Vatican City the world's only elected, non-hereditary absolute monarchy. It's this dual role that makes untangling Vatican City so difficult because the pope, depending on the situation, acts either as the king of the country of Vatican City or the pope of the Holy See. Got it? No? Okay, here's an analogy. Imagine if a powerful international company, say Gray Industries, had a CEO who convinced the United States to give one of its islands to the company, which then made the island into a new country, Graytropolis, with an absolute monarchy as its government, and the law that the king of Graytropolis is, by definition, the CEO of Gray Industries. It's pretty obvious at this point that the CEO should move his corporate headquarters to the new nation so that the laws of the country can benefit the company and the company's global reach can benefit the country. As as for the man in the middle, sometimes it's good to be the CEO and sometimes it's good to be the king. That is essentially Vatican City. But if you're still confused, don't worry, even other countries can't keep it straight. For example, the United Nations has the Holy See, the corporation as a member, but not Vatican City, the actual country. And the Holy See gives passports to Vatican City citizens that other countries accept even though those passports come from a company, not a country. And speaking of Vatican City citizens, they are perhaps the strangest consequence of the Pope's dual role as religious leader and monarch. While other countries mint new citizens with the ever-popular process of human reproduction, Vatican City does not. No one in Vatican City is born a citizen, and that's not just because within a rounding error there are no female Vaticans. The only way to become a citizen is for the King of Vatican City to appoint you as one, and the King only appoints you a citizen if you work for the Pope, who is also the King. And because the king is all-powerful, your citizenship is at his whim. If you quit your job for the pope, the king, who is also the pope, will revoke your citizenship. These rules mean that Vatican City doesn't have a real permanent population to speak of. There are about 500 full citizens, which is fewer people than live in single skyscrapers in many countries. And all these citizens work for the Holy See as either cardinals or diplomats or the pope's bodyguards or other Catholic-related jobs. So it's best to think of Vatican City as a kind of sovereign corporate headquarters that grants temporary citizenship to its managers rather than as a real city-state like Singapore, which has a self-reproducing population of citizens engaged in a variety of economic activities, both of which Vatican City lacks. But in the end, the reason the world cares about Vatican City is not because of the citizens within its walls, but because of the billion members of its church outside of those walls. I have, um, oh, I don't know, talked a lot about these people's nose, and because, you know, more information brings more thoughts, right? So let's talk about noses. Well, <laughs> um, now I need to remind you that I don't know, whatever, I talked about uh, when I was talking about noses in the past that um, what I had been looking into was I had noticed that a lot of these statues that they cooked up, the nose was missing, okay? So, of course, back then, I was thinking, well, it could be because they were hiding the Jewish nose, right? Well, more information brings a closer look. So now that, and you know, for the longest time, I've had 
Jewish and Italian noses on my mind. Okay, that's been percolating around the background. So, of course, I had quite a few files about noses already. So let me share just kind of briefly here. I think this is just a couple of pages um, <laughs> where I'm playing with noses. And I think I would have put noses in the title of that show. But let me go ahead here, okay? And now that they came from Rome and all that kind of stuff. The nose thing be brings on a whole new light for me, and I always found this quite interesting. So, in ancient Rome, being born with a hooked nose was considered a sign of leadership. The Romans saw a person with an eagle's nose as beautiful and dignified. Remember, they use eagles all over their logos and stuff, all those eagles all over the place. So. <laughs> they were preferred to as aquiline noses. Now, the reason I give you these key words is because here's how it works. The Internet is their system for categorizing things, right? So if you jot down these key words... It unlocks everything, and it's just in the keywords. Because even like when I, you know, close out a file by accident, I can always find it again because I remember a few keywords, okay, and then go from there. And it's quite an adventure. So yeah, um, because like I've said before, Wikipedia is kind of like their database system, right? Same way that all those genealogy things <laughs> having to do with no this nobility group are out there, right? It's just been a kind of a tangled mess to try to get there. So anyway, so um, they were <laughs> they were referred to as aquiline noses. A-Q-U-I-L-I-N-E noses. The name comes from the word aquinus. A-Q-U-I-L-I-N-U-S and in parentheses it says eagle-like, okay? Okay, what else did I have here? Um, I had, obviously, a lot of nose, nose files, so I'm just kind of trying to skim over because it starts to make sense because this whole nose thing actually started in ancient Rome, okay? So this is how the trail, where I'm going with this trail here, okay? And what else did I have here? In Victorian England, too, where the nose was considered the strongest highest and most perfect expression of character even in the face of a beast the roman or aquiline nose was considered the most desirable type a sign of great powers of decision decision energy and firmness <laughs> well that doesn't sound like these people i don't know exactly what does <laughs> so um I don't know why I have this stuff here, but let me read it. It says, um, most Jewish people look generally Mediterranean or Levantine, okay? But there is no chart to compare eyes, nose, ears, etc. And this I found very interesting, okay? During World War II, the Nazis were completely unable to tell who was Italian and who was Jewish. Um, the nose signified beauty and nobility. 
the Nazis, on the other hand, despised it and saw it as a characteristic of Jewish people. Well, they could well have because, right, these people are not, in fact, Jewish, right? So th there could really be a group of Jewish people that all these people actually really despise, okay? Were those the people that got the actual numbers tattooed on them during those camps and stuff? Well, I don't know. Um, so, you know, yeah, so the Nazis, on the other hand, despised it and saw it as a character of Jewish people. Well, a lot of this is also how they started doing racial separation of us, right? Even more broadly, Jews like Shakespeare's Shylock typically ended up being portrayed with a hook nose to represent evilness. Okay. So, in early Europe, the hooked Roman nose signified beauty and nobility. Yeah, I don't know if I've already read this or not. Okay, so uh, the Nazis, on the other hand, despised it. Okay, so yeah, I think this sounds to me like, you know, was there some Jewish people mixed into this? Well, it's a little likely. I mean, these people have kind of taken over everything, right? So um, were they this part of the deal? There, there were some actual Jews. They conquered them. They shipped them off to Israel. Then they went and conquered Israel. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of luxuries in Israel. So is that just another tax shelter for these people? I mean, you know, Israel has a lot of things going on for it. So I'm not going to do a dissertation on Israel this second. But yeah. So yeah, the, the high possibility in my mind that, you know, there were some Jewish people, right? Because it appears to me like they hijacked Israel, so that doesn't make me think that they were anything but these Romans, right? So, and then I have these other pieces I'll just read to you. It said, Ashkenazi Jews are the descendants of those Jews who settled in the Rhine Valley. Now that would be um, Germany, right? At least a century before the two failed Judean, Judean revolts. Now, this is way before I could even start to grasp this stuff. But if you're into this whole Bible thing, just pay attention to what I'm saying here, okay? Which resulted in the destruction of Jews by Rome. Jews had already settled in Rome and its European provinces, primarily Gaul, G-A-U-L which included the Rhine Valley. They were joined by tens of thousands of Jews exiled by Rome after the failed revolts. Most of them settled in the same areas, especially the Rhine Valley and Eastern Gaul, that's the G-A-U-L. For most of the time after the fall of the Western Empire, these areas were part of the Franklin Kingdom, which eventually evolved into France and the Holy Roman Empire, which itself evolved into Austria and Germany. So see, the Holy Roman Empire, I don't know, seems to kind of merge with Germany at this point, right? So would they go on to say these really years, these See, here's the thing. We now know that the Romans were 
you know, the ones you set up the calendar, right? So there, there's a lot of trickery going on with these years, but I'll just read what's written down as far as these years, right? So this has all just been a big shuffle mix of what really happened during what year. So between the years 1100 to 1400 CE, these communities were forced to migrate to Eastern Europe, which now is modern day Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania and Lativia. They are called Ashkenazism because Ashkenaz was a Mediterranean Jewish name for France, the Rhine and Danube valleys. Modern genetic research shows their DNA is primarily Levantine with a fair input of European genes enough to assume most came from intermarriage, not rape and pillage. So I, I, I don't know where I came up with this information from. I'm just reading because I'm giving you an update of the nose business. So the last time I was talking about noses, I would have put these things into this file. So that's about all I have there. But the main point here, okay, it comes from ancient Rome. It's considered a sign of leadership. Okay, so who does this exactly sound like? The eagle's nose? beautiful and dignified <laughs> there's eagles all over these things eagle like yeah well you decide for yourself i find this very interesting because i just had been on this nose thing for quite a while so i felt kind of a need to qualify why i've been on on noses so anyway onward we go history in a nutshell how did the romans change britain well, first off, by conquering it, and conquering it violently. The Romans loved conquering other people. In fact, it kept the whole empire going. Conquering their neighbors gave Roman leaders a chance to steal booty, capture slaves, grab natural resources like lead and tin, and generally look good in front of their mates and rivals. In AD 43, the new Roman Emperor Claudius was in search of a scrap to cement his status, and so he plotted his invasion of Britain, an island the Romans had been eyeing up for some time. He sent 40,000 soldiers over the channel and they quickly defeated the tribes in the southeast. Once it was safe, the Emperor popped across to Britain to soak up the praise and show off his elephants. Some tribal leaders gave in to the empire rather than try to fight it, but not everyone was happy. The Druids helped to organize the resistance against the Romans, and Queen Boudicca led a huge revolt in AD 60. But the Romans didn't mess about. They beat Boudicca in battle, destroyed the Druids, and brought the bulk of Britain under their control. But Roman soldiers were more than just fearsome fighters. They were brilliant builders. Forts were their speciality, and they built hundreds of them across the province. The Romans also loved their roads. They built over 8,000 miles of them in the first century AD alone, and many of our roads today still follow old Roman routes. But the biggest, baddest structure in Roman Britain was Hadrian's Wall. It was a whopping 73 miles long, and in places it was up to 6 meters high and 3 meters thick. No wonder it took 15,000 men about 6 years to build. The Romans founded some terrific towns too, like London, York, Bath, and Chester. 
On a trip into town, you could shop on the high street, worship gods at the temples, grab a burger from a takeaway, have a kip in a hotel, and go for a wash and a gossip at the heated public baths. A lot like towns today, in fact. Although unlike today, you could also go to the amphitheater to watch executions and animals being hunted. The Romans brought new types of food to Britain, like apples, pears, plums, cucumbers, and walnuts. They brought a new language, Latin. They brought new ways of farming, new medicines, and new types of pottery. Life for the rich had never been better. Wealthy Roman Britons built grand houses in towns and Roman-style villas in the countryside, full of mosaic floors, fine wines, and formal gardens. They even had underfloor heating. For most people in Roman Britain, though, life didn't change too much. They were still mostly farmers, and they still had to pay their landlords for the privilege of doing all of the hard work. When the Roman army left Britain in 410 AD, many aspects of Roman life crumbled for everyone, rich and poor. Towns and forts were abandoned, roads fell into disrepair, and large-scale industry collapsed without an economy to sustain it. People adapted to the new reality, new leaders emerged, and farmers kept on farming. But after nearly 400 years, Roman Britain was in ruins. It's a little haven just for me I can let my head down and be me Just a smile for a start And it only takes a spark To begin the fire in your heart Wouldn't you agree? Hello listener, this is Hachi I hope you are enjoying the show We would like you to consider supporting us So as to keep giving you interesting contents Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. Okay, another thing that I took a look at was temples, as in Roman places of worship. Okay. The cella, C-E-L-L-A, is a term used to call the primary room in the Roman temple. It was filled with a small altar dedicated for the cult image of the deity. Behind the cella, the storage for offerings for the deities and equipment for the rituals were stored inside the rooms located behind the cella. Here again, we're finding something that is like a facade, right? Okay. Public ceremonies. The temple precinct would accommodate the public during the ceremonies or rituals. It was rare for ordinary people to enter the cella, C-E-L-L-A. Facts about Roman temples, the architectural design. The high podium was spotted in the architectural design of a Roman temple. It has rectangular shape. The top of the steps featured a portico, 
above the columns, you can spot a, a triangular <gasps> pediment. You would not find any entrances on the rear or sides of the temple. The circular temple design was also available. The design of Roman temples usually compiled were usually compiled with the local preference. Now I don't know, there's this thing about these Etruscan temples, E-T-R-U-S-C-A-N temples. It was heavily influenced by the Greek, it's all those columns and stuff. Um, the religious ceremonies held by the public took place outside the temple. We weren't in the temple, right? The offerings of the people would be stored or deposited inside the temple. But yeah, we showed up and gave them offerings, right? But we kept our space outside the temple. Okay, sacrifices. Animals were often used as the sacrifices. The ritual took place inside in the temple located in the open air. Some ruins, here the word ruins, of Roman temples survive until today. However, some of them were transformed into Christian churches. Hmm, kind of a smooth transition there, right? So. The decree of Emperor Honorius, H-O-N-O-R-I-U-S, in 415 led to the appropriation, to appropriating the temples by the government. So, how did they convert these temples into churches? Okay, here, um, supposedly how it happened. The temple of Romulus was converted into Santi Cosma, a Damanian in 527. Well, I don't know. Um, another famous instance of conversion from temple to church in the Roman pantheon. Well, okay. Um, Roman Pantheon was considered as a unique temple due to its unconventional design. It has grandeur concrete, a grandeur concrete roof with large circular layout. Okay, the Roman temple design was focused at the front part of the building while less attention was at the rear. Generally, there were two types of Roman house, the Domus, D-O-M-U-S, and the Insula, I-N-S-U-L-A. The first, the Domus, D-O-M-U-S, was the house where rich Roman families, families lived, while the second, the insula, I-N-S-U-L-A, was inhabited by poorer or common people. There was also a third type of Roman dwelling, the villa, which was outside the city walls and was used by wealthier families as a holiday home. Well, where'd the word villa come from? I don't know, Italy? Oh, the reason that all these investors are buying up land is because, you know, 
part of this deal with these people is this land rent deal because they believe strongly that buy up all the land so you can always have renters. So yeah, this is this is a road. You know, I mean, the fifties were the boom period. Everybody buy their own houses. Now we're moving into the more author authoritarian approach that they're buying all the properties. So yeah. Clearly, the DOMUS, D-O-M-U-S, class are getting us insula people in line with where they want our city walls to be because the rest is for their wealthier family. To me, and I don't get it, get off on a big tangent here, but to me, this truly does speak to their um, utter arrogance because, I mean, what's that old saying, Rome is following? Well, it looks to me like Rome is truly following. Whatever this whole landscape is here, things are clearly coming to some sort of an end, right? You can't argue that. Um, but yet these people who appear very strongly to me to be the Romans I've been talking about that come from history, well, their arrogance lives on because they seem to be wanting to cling to this opulent lifestyle while the rest poor, which backs up my thing I've said for a million times. They do not understand us and they got us into such a position of compliance they think, well, whatever, right? Because this has not really entered into their thinking process that um, they claim that part of the reason that FDR did the um, Medicare and Social Security and stuff was because he told the wealthy, either pay them more now or they'll come for and take everything, meaning the working class. Well, <laughs> um, they're in that position now, right? They've got all the wealth and, and the working class is outside of their luxury walls. Well, I, I don't know. To me, I, I would rather be the insula crowd, okay? Because to me, our team hopefully will bound together and not continue to carry the water for these people. And uh, the Dormus crowd seems pretty vulnerable to me. Um, and, you know, if, if you're on the Dormus crowd, but not really connected to these high echelon people, I would sincerely take a look at what your long-term position is because uh, the Dormus people will be, it, 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 this is a game of uh, winner take all. Now, I'm assuming that in the end, our creator wins and these people lose, but I'm not trying to get overly speculative here, but the insula class is where I'm fine being okay. They, they can take the villas and all that. So moving on here. It seems that in the construction of the literary character Jesus Christ, the Roman authors borrowed religious concepts not only from Judaism, but also from other gods and religions that they knew. Some scholars have noticed the similarities between the story of Jesus and the ancient pagan mysteries. In ancient mythology, we find this whole strain of thought called solar mythology. Many gods start taking on solar attributes because as agricultural communities become more important, the sun becomes the big focus, the most obvious reasons of planting and harvesting. The sun is then personified, so now we have a male sun god. It becomes a religion in many parts of the world. Christianity usurped a tremendous amount of sun worship. Some of us are saying that this was a sun god turned into a Jewish man. This December 25th birthday was in fact the winter solstice. This is really in fact the birth of the god of light. December 25th actually is the end of a three-day period of when the sun stands still. 
the sun appears to be dying as the days become shorter and the sun is reborn at that point. Across the ancient world, there was this form of experiential and philosophical spirituality in these mystery cults or mystery schools. Uh, and at the center of these schools, you would find a uh, mythos, which was an initiatory myth, a symbolic myth, which would help uh, people who were going through the initiatory process come to this spiritual awakening, this knowledge, this, what they call gnosis. And what you see in these myths is the elements that will later become the Jesus story. Let's ask the question, is Jesus developed from pre-existing literary characters? Jesus has certain episodes in this so-called life, and each one of them can be traced to a prior representation of that type. If you look at the, the elements which we found in the pagan mystery school myths, you find the story of a dying and resurrecting son of God, who's born of a virgin, has 12 disciples, turns water into wine at a wedding, uh, it brings a new religion of love, is uh, accused of heresy or of, of pr provocation by the authorities, is put to death, sometimes by crucifixion. And then if you want to commune with the God-man, you take bread and wine, and then you can come to eternal life. Well, all of this is, of course, Christianity. depiction all these things are also you will notice romanticized right this um, romanticized depiction from 1887 showing two Roman women offering a sacrifice to the goddess Vesta so supposedly I looked at was ancient Roman a pagan religion? And paganism is a term first used in the fourth century by early Christians for people in the Roman Empire who practice polytheism or ethnic religions other than Judaism. In the time of the Roman Empire, individuals fell into pagan class either because they were increasingly rural and provincial relatives to the Christians. What that means, I don't know, but let me see. It. Maybe it defines it a little better right here. Okay, pagan was a term used by Christians for non-Christians. Okay, so Roman religion existed for centuries before Christianity. Therefore, the Romans were pagans like all the civilizations of the Mediterranean where Christianity spread to, including the Greek and Egyptians who were also under the Roman Empire. In the late empire, Christianity began, became the religion of the masses around the empire and the, Christian, oh, and the Christians outnumbered the pagans. 
the spread of Christianity reached Rome, reached Greece before Rome, where it developed into a form which came to be called Orthodox Christianity. Isn't that the Orthodox Church? Some of these pagans became Orthodox Christianity. And which was widespread in the Middle East and Egypt as well. In Italy, Latin Christianity developed. This eventually came to be called Roman Catholicism. There were also other versions of Christianity which were opposed and eventually suppressed by the Orthodox and Latin churches. The most important of these was A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M, which was very popular in both the East and the West of the Empire. At first, the Romans persecuted the Christians as the Roman elites were entrenched in the pagan state religion. When Christianity became at first a tolerated religion and then a state religion, persecution of the pagans by the Christians began. The ancient Roman religion is one of the better known pagan religions. Early Roman religion was based on spirits. Okay, so... uh, Alternative terms in Christian texts were Hellene, Gentile, and heathen. Ritual sacrifice was an integral part of ancient Greco-Roman religion, which was regarded as an indication of whether a person was pagan or Christian. Paganism has broadly connoted connoted the religion of the peasantry, so the pagans were the peasants. During and after the Middle Ages, the term paganism was applied to any non-Christian religion, and the term presumed a belief in false god. Well, these people, these uh, people here, are all about all these gods, right? All these Roman gods, all these Roman statues, all that kind of stuff. So clearly they're in the uh, false god section, these pagans, right? Okay. The application of the term pagan to polytheism is debated. By the 19th century, paganism was adopted as a self descriptor by members of various artistic groups inspired by the ancient world. In the 20th century, it came to be applied as a self-descriptor by practitioners of modern paganism, neo-pagan movements, and polythesis reconstructionists. Modern pagan traditions often incorporate beliefs or practices such as nature worship that are different from those in the largest word world religion. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, magic and all that stuff here. So, um, and I was digging more into the pagan part, and I was asking what I was wondering what is Roman paganism? Okay, paganism from classical Latin word rural, rustic, and later civilization is a term first used in the 
fourth century by early Christians for people in the Roman Empire who practiced polythesis or ethnic religions other than Judaism. What did Roman pagans believe? In the strictest sense, paganism referred to the authentic religions of ancient Greece and Rome and the surrounding areas. The pagans usually had a polythetic belief in many gods, but only one, which represents the chief god and supreme godhead, is chosen to worship. And then I looked up, are Romans pagans? Roman pagan festivals became early Roman pagan. It was tied to daily life. It wasn't uncommon for people to celebrate different gods and goddesses every month or even weekly. The ancient Romans honored a wide variety of gods. Okay, and they're still doing that today. Okay, so you know, all roads seem to live, live, lead in this direction, right? Okay, and also remember the early Romans were the ones who cooked up the Olympic Games, right? Pagan worship, pagans worship the divine in many different forms through feminine as well as masculine imagery and also without gender. The most important and widely recognized of these are the god and goddesses or pantheons of god and goddesses whose annual cycle of procreation give birth and dying images the pagan year. And I don't know, according to these people, I looked at who's the most powerful pagan god, and I'm just, okay, I'll just read it. Taking the form of a regular, this person called, um, taking the form of a regular old dude on earth, Odin, O-D-I-N is who you're looking for, who was father of the mischievous trickster Loki, L-O-K-I, was the chief pagan deity of the Norse pantheon, N-O-R-S-C pantheon, possessing many powers similar to his kind. Odin is associated with healing, royalty, knowledge, and poetry. So, yeah, they, they do have a very strong trickster element to all this stuff, right? Sometimes I read things and it's just like, well, it could be kind of hysterical, right? If there weren't such an ugly underside. Okay, so, I don't know. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about what I've been looking into as far as the magic part. Um, the persecution of the pagans under this person called Theodius began in the year 381 after the first couple of years of his reign, co-emperor of the Roman Empire, Greco, oh, let me start over here again. There's, there was this thing I found called Greco-Roman magic, otherwise known as ancient magic. And that was developed in the Greco-Roman culture. And so, yeah, uh, magic was everywhere in those days. It was practiced by people of all classes and professions with more or less faith. Fortune tellers, astrologers, selling their skills and messages. It was an everyday sight. Experts on magic 
herbs and let me see here. Maybe probably it, okay. Experts on magic herbs and spells were also common. It was also possible to hire a writer who wrote in appropriate magic formula on, say, papyrus, so this person would write it down on this papyrus stuff. Often there were buildings decorated with mosaics or statues or paintings with a magical theme, which were to protect the house and its inhabitants from danger. People wore jewelry or ornaments and treated as amulets or with ornaments with magical symbolism. This symbolism stuff is pretty easy to look up. Okay, in the first century CE, this person called, his name comes up a lot, Pliny, C-E, Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, admitted with admiration and concerns the omnipresence of magic in the world in which he lived. He wrote, let me scroll down here, this was Pliny. This is first originated in medicine, no one entertains a doubt or that under the plausible guise of promoting health, it insinuated itself among mankind at a higher or more holy branch of the medical art. Then in the first place, to promises to be more seductive. Uh, so yeah, it has incorporated itself the astrological art. These people are just really, uh, the whole basic is magic. And I could go on for the hundred years, but let me get over here this so i was looking at what's the history of ancient roman magic the greeks the egyptians the mesopelians and everyone else in the ancient world used some form of magic like spells charms and amulets however because historians of classical rome and greece have focused on political or military history or the history of the upper class, few of us are familiar with the history of Roman magic. Well, surprise, surprise. Um, I think that, um, um, so, the ancient Romans had a secret way of ensuring that the race was fixed. This was about the uh, chariot races. You see those statues around. Um, because somebody did a piece called Roman Magic, Control in an Uncertain World. Okay. And they said that chariot races were immortalized by Roman artists. Um, the ancient Romans had a secret way of ensuring that the race was fixed. They used magic. The use of magic wasn't really a secret among the ancients. The Greeks, the Egyptians, and the Mesopotamians to Polonians and everyone else use some kind. Um, yeah, magic was really a big, big deal. I've got several pieces that, you know, there's these, some of these people who have these uh, papers they've all written in this academic group about the introduction of magic and all that, that, um, you know, one of these days I'll post them on the website and I'll let you know. Um, so, um, what I see happening is this magic thing has evolved into what's going on now. So, um, if a Roman wanted to get rid of a political rival, he had at least two options. 
he could do the killing himself or hire a hitman. But a third option that involved substantially less risk also existed. This entailed hiring a magician, a man or a woman, to commit the murder. Instructions for committing a murder, <coughs> excuse me, instructions for committing a murder by using magic were relatively straightforward. Get a piece of lead, shape it into a thin, flat rectangle, and inscribe a message to the infernal deity such as deities destroy lucius if you do so i will make a donation to your temples hmm. yes funny how that works right and they have all of these um things they have in the museums and here is one that was interesting it was um the magician then needed to follow a specific ritual he or she would fold the lead tablet, pierce it with an iron nail, and take it to the graveyard. After making sure that no curse written on the tombstone, such as may anyone disturb this tomb, the magician dug a hole big enough to insert a tablet into the ground, and thus the intended victim would die. <laughs> so, um, I don't know... Um, People in ancient Rome lived past the age of 30. A few people in ancient Rome lived past the age of 30. Mm. And because knowledge of the human body was so limited, sudden deaths were not uncommon. Mm. Um, yeah, th there's a whole, I mean, just this thing about magic and the Romans. I mean, just have at it. Just, just type in, um, but here's what I want to get to. Just type in Romans and magic, okay? <laughs> you'll, you'll find out done i mean okay <clears throat> here's here's the point i was getting to here the early romans supposedly happened to have invented the legal system right so <laughs> okay the romans had a fairly advanced legal system but it often favored those who were both wealthy and free so it made sense that those without economic or political power attempted to bypass the courts and use magic instead. If you had a ring stolen and knew who the thief was, a magician would inscribe a spell on a lead tablet saying, Deity, bring Titus to justice. Make him return my ring and then let him lose his fortune. For those who were brought to trial, magic still had its uses. Defendants also prepared two types of defense, a non-magical legal defense and a decision that used magic. Verbal or written spell could call upon the deity to bind the tongue of my opponent Rufus and make him speechless. Do not let him win this lawsuit. Many a lawyer for the losing party claimed that spells had made him forget his words or tied his tongue, a clear indication that many Romans believed that the project made the made the ancient Romans believe that the practice of magic was widespread. 
What about all the songs? Do you believe in magic? <laughs> okay. Um, every and I looked at these chariot races because there's all these embolism, uh, embolism, <laughs> all these symbolism around chariots and stuff, right? <clears throat> and this said, everyone from the emperor down to the lowest slave loved chariot racing. Kind of like everybody now to the lowest slave of us loves those lottery games. <laughs> Gambling was widespread at these races, those chariot races, with many Romans prepared to bet everything they owned as well as money they had borrowed at outrageous rates of interest, all in the hopes of a big win. I mean, this is like the whole model society now, right? <laughs> okay, under those circumstances, who wouldn't want to use a little magic to better the odds? A savvy Roman would head straight for the temple of Fortuna. There he would find what he wanted, a magician unpacking his wares in the shade of a tree that stood next to the main entrance. Among the magician's wares were amulets and, of course, the usual lead tablets. For a small fee, the magician would inscribe the names of the horses on the inscribe the names of the horses of the other teams on a tablet, along with a request to the deity to blind their feet and hobble them. After the magician finished inscribing, folding, and piercing the tablet with a nail, the gambler would then the gambler would then the, would then nail the description to the ground beneath the starting gates making sure to hide it by covering it up with a bit of dust. Did his team win or lose? If it won, the Roman would be sure to credit the magician. Unfortunately, if he lost, he would lose not only his money, but also his freedom as creditors seized him. For some unhappy gamblers, suicide followed. Okay, now this was interesting about health, as they call it in early Rome. Um, in the pre-antibiotic era, illnesses were widespread and often incurable. Not surprisingly, the Romans had all kinds of remedies to treat their illnesses. Magic was just one approach to curing illnesses. And there, there was this example of it all. It said, a dislocation or fracture could be treated by binding a five-foot green reed to the injury <coughs> and then saying the following incantation. Motas, vatas, darias, tardes, and whatever. <laughs> it sounds Italian to me. I do speak and read Spanish, so but it doesn't look Spanish to me, but it looks Italian. Um, but I'm not saying for sure it is. Okay, I'm not going to stop and look. <laughs> it just looks Italian. Okay, the Romans weren't averse to calling on foreign as well as Roman deities. A, sporky, a scorpion sting could be treated, so it was believed by invoking Circuit, the Egyptian deity. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, so yeah, uh, there is obviously a huge, huge deal about magic in these people, okay? Um, Women who wanted to avoid getting pregnant had a variety of magical choices. One was to make an 
amulet out of a piece of fawn skin bound with mule hide. Then they stuffed this into bitter vetch seeds, the mucus of a cow, and some grains of barley. All this had to be done during the waning of the moon while invoking on otherworldly beings. Most Romans seemed to live in constant fear of supernatural powers and forces that they believed in but did not understand. This made them pay magicians frequent visits in order to buy amulets as protection against spells, against the evil eye, against the power of spirits and demons, and even against evil in general. The Romans believed that children were especially vulnerable. This seems reasonable due to the high mortality rates among infants and children, few of whom lived to the age of 10. So no self-respecting parent would neglect to get an amulet, a bulla for a son, or a lumula, L-U-N-U-L-A, for a daughter right after birth. Unfortunately, as archaeologists can attest, it's not archaeologists, it's archaeologists, in case you think, oh, she's mispronounced another word. No, it's archaeologists can attest. These amulets seldom made a difference. Why talk about always trying to claw back some money, right? Okay, the view from the other side. What about all those who offer their services, that is, male and female magicians, sorcerers, and witches? Did they believe in magic? Did they believe in the spells and charms they used and sold? Or did they know that they were selling fraudulent goods? It is hard to tell what their view was. All we can This is them talking, not me. All we can say for certain is that there was a very large market for what they had to offer and giving customers what they wanted kept them in business throughout Rome <laughs> beyond Rome's dominations and beyond yes this is very interesting because their one uh, major psychic of the 80s was a woman named Sylvia Brown and I won't get into the whole thing about Sylvia Brown but she used to show up on this um, Montel Williams show <laughs> every sadly uh, Every case that she predicted <clears throat> was, was made up, okay? I actually had a meeting with Sylvia Brown when I was younger. But anyway, long story short. But So Sylvia Brown, um, one quote that she made when I was looking back at Sylvia Brown, oh, I don't know, the last year or two, because having, having had a session with her and this whole scam, she was pulling all those shares in there. Um, and I, I've been following this gypsy deal, you know, the gypsy with the spells and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's all these gypsy fortune tellers all over New York City and, Anyhow, so yeah, so um, where were they going with this? So yeah, all, all these spells that they, they, they want to put on people. You know, they put spells in the tomatoes <laughs> and convince us that they you know, were going to get some sort of disease. So yeah, this stuff all clearly to me kind of indicates from these people, you know, um, that's why they do these spells. And this is why um, I've talked in the past about... There's some place between heaven and hell. And, you know, I, I don't like to use those terms because they, you know, kind of polluted them all but there is some space between 
what we see existing now and what might be considered some uh, torturous place, right? But there's also some place in between all of this, right? And this is where I believe a lot of these people are also being recruited from because when people leave this spirit body, they can go in different directions, right? And there's possibly some holding pattern that people could go into. And, you know, they have, with using some kind of magic, figured out a way to, like, stack the deck somehow, right? Um, but, yeah. Um, but remember, just because of all this talk of magic does not make them, let's say, effective at it, right? Because if they were so good at magic, uh, this may be something that at one point magic was used to overtake us or something like that is one option, right? But the magic deal would certainly be depleted at this point if you understand the structure of those at the top because they've been doing hormones for the last couple of generations that I can clearly state 100%, right? So I, I would think there'd be a pretty big diminishing effect of what their magic skills were just based on that drug use, okay? Because when you're born, when you're, when you're flipped at birth to being the opposite sex, you're on a protocol of hormones. So, you know, we've, we've already been seeing the diseases and the, you know, all, all, this, all, all this stuff that's going on with all of that. So I would have to say that, yeah, I, I could say that maybe they tricked us all by some sort of form of magic, but they, they have... Their skills have waned since then, right? And I think what they did to get in front of this stuff, well, that's probably the reason for the Salem witch trials, right? Because that would convince us to kind of some third degree of brainwashing that, uh, hey, don't try to use your magic skills yourself. Because the whole idea of social media is to drown out our ability to connect with, you know, we didn't need to use language. We connected without using language. So... It has been an exerted effort to drown that out of us, you know. And so, yeah, um, they've had to resort to other skills now because of the lack of magic. For example, the other skills became biochemical ways that were all being targeted and attacked, right? So, yeah, it, it makes sense to me that this all started by some sort of magic trick, okay? Do I think they have these supersonic skills right now that they can just go, hey, we're going to zap everybody? No. I think what they have done is they have converted that into now they're using bio-weapons bio and stuff against us. So, yeah. But I think they did start with magic. So, anyway, so here we go. Hello, my name is Richard Young, and this is my digital story. This digital story is intended to compare and contrast aspects of ancient Rome under Augustus and Constantine, and by comparing the two, comparing a traditional pagan worship to Christianity. By the end of this video, you should be able to answer how Rome changed as its religion did. In 27 BCE, Octavian, adopted son of Julius Caesar, came into power, renaming himself Augustus and marking the beginning of the Roman Empire. Augustus, like Julius Caesar and every other ruler before him, worshipped the traditional Roman gods like Jupiter and Mars. One example of traditional Roman, Roman belief was the deification of emperors after their death. Augustus, after coming into power, deifies Julius Caesar, hosting a funerary procession in his name and deifying him as a god. Another practice that was common in the early empire under Augustus' rule was gladiator combat. Gladiator fights, or gladiator games as they were known, happened six or seven days a week throughout the empire. 
Early Christian authors during this time are opposed to gladiator combat and the deification of emperors because they are symbols of pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry for early Christians was anything that gave praise or worship to a higher being that wasn't the Christian God. Throughout the early empire, Christians are persecuted for their religion. Most notably, the story of Perpetua and Felicity. After refusing to sacrifice in the name of the Roman gods, Perpetua and Felicity were imprisoned. They were condemned to death by beast hunt. The girls, along with two other Christians, were thrown into the Colosseum with leopards, and that was the end of their story. Many people, like Perpetua and Felicity, died as martyrs for Christianity, which ultimately bolstered faith in the religion throughout the empire. It isn't until the rule of Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, that Christian persecution officially ends. After coming into power in 306, Constantine, who was already sympathetic to Christianity, converts and transforms Rome into a Christian state. Gladiator games are banned as bloodshed in the Colosseum is no longer acceptable. Chariot racing replaces gladiator combat as the commonplace Roman game. Ritual sacrifice is no longer required of Roman citizens, and no one is persecuted for their belief system. Upon his death, Constantine is not deified like his predecessors. He is buried beneath the church that he built with an understanding that he wasn't a god. Rome, under Christian rule, offers more freedom for its citizens and less violence as blood sports are banned and sacrifices no longer occur. In summary, over the 300 centuries between Augustus and Constantine, Rome becomes more tolerant of religious beliefs and less tolerant of violence. Christians are no longer persecuted for their beliefs, and blood sports like gladiator combat and beast hunts are banned from the Colosseum. mentioned before it's commenting not complaining I record these in segments so um, I may have just lost a segment about something the temples so let me keep rolling along here and hopefully I'll find it because yeah I'll, I'll look for it in a bit but here's one about Roman statues the most characteristic feature of ancient Roman sculpture is the contradiction between the form of representation of the body and the head. While the head was often finished with all the signs of aging and reflecting the characteristic of the individual, bodies were represented according to the ancient canons of classical Greek, sculpt Greek sculpture idealized with eternal youth and strength. <laughs> well, of course they would present themselves in the best light, right? So, um, the head was finished with the signs of aging. Okay. 
For the Romans, statues were a sort of symbolic simulacrum, S-I-M-U-L-A-T-R-U-M, but in agreement with the customary Roman representation of the face, more pragmatic than idealistic, <coughs> and seeking the greatest realism such that helped to identify the rep I don't have a clue, but it has to do with the simulacrum. Okay, <coughs> so... I mean, there's a wide world out there. Just look for um, characteristics of Roman design. I'm just trying to give you how I finally got here, right? The overall design of the Capitol buildings, I was looking into that, is an architectural style that sought to evolve the main enlightenment, enlightenment values of reason, order, and democracy. I've talked in the past about the age of enlightenment. All these things have ages to them, okay? An ardent proponent of the neoclassical style, Thomas Jefferson thought that the Capitol building would become the first temple dedicated to the sovereignty of the people. Sovereignty of the people after Les Enfants, that was, you know, the building in Paris, right? L-E-N-F-A-N-T. Oh, this Lafont was something that was diminished from the Capitol Building Project because of his stuff. Oh, this, oh, wait, 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 wait. Some guy named, or gal named Les Enfants, was dismissed from the project because of his stubborn resistance to authority. So Jefferson, <clears throat> I love these stories, Jefferson proposed a competition for the Capitol's design that <clears throat> William Thornton, T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N, an amateur architect won. While the overall design is neoclassical, the central dome reflects Jefferson pre Jefferson's pre preference is reminiscent of the dome on the Pantheon in Rome. <laughs> Jefferson, in fact, had designed the Virginia State Capitol building with a dome uh, also inspired by a Roman temple. So this is... <laughs> I mean, it seems to me the evidence is kind of stacking up, doesn't it, to you? Um, so, and you have to excuse me hopping around because this is a rather large file, so I'm just going to keep rolling along here. These are all things that, you know, all I had to do was look for what I'd looked at before it was Rome. So here we go. Okay, why does, why does Washington, D.C. have Roman architecture? Thomas Jefferson, who was Secretary of State, wanted the building oh i already said this right okay so jefferson wanted the building to be a replica of an ancient roman temple <laughs> so, um uh, what structure oh the structure was actually before i started laughing there the structure that influence that has influenced by the roman architecture arc de Triomphe and Palace Vendome, D-E-N-D-O-M, 
are just two examples of French architects borrowing Roman formulas. Roman formulas, you hear that? More recently, many official buildings built in the United States are very strongly influenced by archi Roman architecture. Well, the answer is also quite simple because um, if you do, if you replicate the same thing, and so they've come up with a thing that I've talked about in the past, and they say like, well, this is um, new, new uh, Romanesque, and this is new um, Gothic, and the other is old Gothic, right? So they have this system that they either seem to be Gothic or Roman design, right? And some of these buildings, they possibly could have had Gothic, and they slapped um, this Roman, <clears throat> the statues, <coughs> and stuff all on top of that. And, you know, I think there's this distinct reason why you know, museums are not only cash cows and keeping all this stuff so-called <laughs> safe. <laughs> is that many of these statues, and I'm not going to go into a whole discovery, but this is what I've concluded, is that many of these statues clearly are not, you know, hand chiseled or anything. They're, they're basically poured by resin. So, yeah, so it makes it easier to hide all these things when they're cooking up this world but really are not even close to being true. So yeah, if you come up with a design that works, keep rolling with it, right? So, uh, and I, I was also looking into Roman and American architecture. <clears throat> More recently, official buildings built in the U.S. are very strongly influenced by Roman architecture. The most obvious is the White House which features Roman influence in the arches and columns on the exterior. The Jefferson Memorial in the U.S. couldn't look more Roman if it tried. <laughs> and I was also looking at how did the Romans contribute to architecture? <laughs> I would say quite a great deal, but let me tell you how I got there. <clears throat> when I was saying, the Romans were the first builders in the history of architecture to realize the potential of domes for the creation of large and well-defined interior spaces. Domes were introduced in a number of Roman building types, such as temples, thermae, and that is T-H-E-R-M-A-E, palaces mausoleums <clears throat> M-A-U-S-O-L-E-A and later also wait for it later what do these things become? churches <laughs> oh boy some days it's like shooting fish in a barrel when all this stuff starts to add up okay so let me move along here um uh, I had also looked at the what civilization had the greatest influence on the architecture of Washington, D.C. Uh, and these people said, a good example is the nation's capital, a planned community designed by Pierre Charles de Enfant, L-E-N-F-A-N-T. Washington, D.C. reflects the influences of Egypt classical Greek in Rome. Gee whiz, I wonder why that is, right? <laughs> Medieval Europe, 19th century France, and others. How did Roman architecture 
affect Western civilization? Another question I had. Well, um, they built the famous Roman highway system of military and commercial interconnecting roads. The Romans built aqueducts, bridges, tunnels, public and private buildings of all kinds and for all purposes. This explains why I have been kind of fixated on this idea of tunnels, right? So, so yeah, all these things are being alleged to be purported that something came from the genius rulers who lived in the villas and uh, came up with these tunnels, right? Well, that's where I'm sure the slaves came in to build all these things, but let me continue on here. Um, oh, I looked at what was Rome's greatest contribution to architecture, okay? <laughs> the arch and the vault. The Romans did not invent, but did master both the arch and the vault, bringing a new dimension to their buildings that the Greeks did not have. They brought domes, concrete, domestic architecture, public buildings, the Colosseum. Wasn't the Colosseum where they would like solder people and have blood fights and stuff? These people or something else. Aqueducts. Triumphal arches. Yeah, those triumphal arches. Look around. Jeez. <laughs> Don't get dizzy because they're everywhere. Um, okay, then there was something I found. It said, what architectural feature on the Texas, Texas Capitol building shows ancient Roman influence? And the answer was the definitive architectural style on Capitol Hill is neoclassical inspired by the use of ancient Greek and Roman designs of Roman designs of great public buildings. These styles are recognized by the use of tall columns, symmetrical shapes, triangular pediments, and domed roofs, and also by an emphasis on the front of these buildings, right? So Okay. Where, oh, where'd the Capitol building come from? That was because it, it looked like it was to me, right? Um, it says, since the Capitol is in Richmond, Virginia, um, it was an example of Roman cubic architecture. This person said they thought the federal Capitol should be modeled after a spherical temple. S-P-H-E-R-I-C-A-L temple. The U.S. Capitol designs were derived from ancient Greece and Rome, evoked the ideas that guided the nation's founders as they framed the New Republic. And I think I already said this, but let me be sure here. Um, yeah, neoclassical with starting from the Greeks and the Romans. Okay, so all, you know, I don't know if I have a segment about it, but I had this piece that I wrote up because remember that old expression, all roads lead to Rome? <laughs> what were they telling us there, right? Remember, this is whole part of this magic thing is to put all the information out there. And for some reason, that thing popped into my brain was, all roads lead to Rome. So clearly I heard it from somewhere, right? So yeah, and I think this proves that all roads are certainly looking to me like they're leading to Rome. Okay, where did I leave off here? 
monuments directly derived from Roman forms embellished many American cities. For example, in New York City, there is the Washington Square Arch derived from the tradition of Roman triumphal arches. Baltimore's Washington Monument was clearly based on the form of the Column of Trajan, T-R-A-J-A-N. Um, this, this I had highlighted. Um, the U.S. Capitol's designs being derived from ancient Greece and Rome that these supposedly guided the nation's founders. So yes, because this society here or this big human experiment is in fact based on guidelines from Rome, right? I mean, it's, we got Washington, D.C., we got the Vatican, and we got the city of London. So. Okay. Um, um, architect David Berman modeled the iconic 1907 Washington, D.C. Union Station after buildings in ancient Rome with elaborate sculptures, ionic columns, gold leaf, and large marble corridors. Like many train stations in Europe of the 1800s, large arches with common entryways. This Burham person, who was architect Daniel Burham, B-U-R-N-H-A-M, his muse for the architects at Union Station was the Arc de Constantine. And something about, I don't know about... Um, so, I don't know. There's a lot to look for there that I can't get too bogged down, even though I find it all very interesting. So, yeah, those are the words you're looking for. 1907. See how this stuff is kind of popping up? 1907, mid-1800s. And the reason for that, this guy was supposedly some mythical god, creator, noted thinker, whose early ideas inspired the construction of progress of railroads. Prometheus, which is fire. Thales, which is electricity. Themis, which is freedom and justice. Apollo, imagination and inspiration. Cetus, C-E-R-E-S, which is agriculture. And Archimedes, A-R-C-H-I-M-E-D-E-S, is mechanics. Sounds like these Roman people certainly have it all covered, now, don't they? Goes on to say... Roman architecture was unlike that of preceding civilization. Well, she do tell. Why? Because it all got cooked up. <laughs> the grandeur of Greek, Persian, Egyptian, and Etruscan, E-T-R-U-S-C-A-N structures was mostly external. The intent was for the buildings to be impressive from outside. Well, gee, who does this sound like? Sounds like those other buildings they just put on the outside, right? These cultures relied on a post and lintel system, L-I-N-T-E-L system, that used two upright posts like columns with a horizontal block known as the lintel across the top. Since lintels are heavy, much of the interior space had to be used to support the heavy columns. So I guess that made them need to use a lot of heavy 
columns inside or something, but okay. The relationship between Roman and Greek art complicates the study of Roman sculpture. Many of the most renowned Greek sculptures, such as the Apollo Belvedere and the Barbary Faun, F-A-U-N, also known also known via Roman imperial or Hellenistic copies. So somehow these other things seem to be copies or something. So let me so. Art historians often interpreted this replication as reflecting a narrowness of the Roman creative imagination. You don't have to be smart to be a psychopath, okay? But you know, let's 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 call a spade a spade, okay? The same tricks clearly worked for at least at least at least the last couple hundred years, okay? Could be could be less a lot less than that. I don't know. <laughs> They're the ones who cooked up the calendars, so you know, replication is also very money saving for these people whose number one focus is you know, they've cooked up this whole money thing, so yeah. I'm sure that even their own people probably don't clearly understand how this whole thing is just one big trap, but let me not digress here. So, um, art historians often interpreted this replication, oh, as their, their narrowness, but in the late 20th century, Roman art started to be reevaluated on its own terms. <laughs> you hear the cash register start to zing? I mean, if you set up a good crime or a good scam, you can really benefit for a very long time, according to these people. So, Certain perceptions about the nature of Greek sculpture may, in fact, be founded in Roman art. Yeah, okay, keeping track of lies is kind of complicated. Um, Roman sculpture's strengths include portraiture, where they were less concerned with the ideal than the Greeks or ancient Egyptians and created exceptionally characterful pieces and narrative relief scenes. So yeah, um, because, you know, the, the first stuff they cooked up for this other stuff, I'm just guessing here, right? I mean, all these other things that you see in museums, right? Um, these sculptures and stuff. Well, why are they in museums? Because they were so rare they had to be preserved. Well, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, you control the thing, right? So, yeah, they put a lot more fake work into those uh, than these other things. Um, because it said, in contrast to Roman painting, which was extensively practiced, but has virtually all been destroyed, examples of Roman sculptures are numerous. So, yeah, all of these supposedly Roman paintings were all destroyed, but all these sculptures survived, right? <laughs> Well, most Roman sculpture remains more or less intact. It is sometimes damaged or incomplete. Well, yeah. Life-size bronze sculptures are even more uncommon since most have been recycled for their metal. Okay. Um, Start to be valuable because... Greek culture may in fact Greek culture may in fact be founded in Roman artistry. Okay, so this is all kind of coming together. Okay, so
In contrast to Roman painting, which was extensively practiced, but virtually... Okay, I have this part red and bold. <laughs> this stuff never gets never gets any different, right? You know, sometimes it's just like, wow, okay. Okay, let me sit up straight here and try to read this. In contrast to Roman painting, which was extensively practiced, but has virtually all been destroyed, the examples of Roman structure are numerous. While most Roman sculpture remains more or less intact, it is sometimes damaged or incomplete. So yeah, I think I already read that part. Um, yeah, so these statues, um, yeah, I mean, they show, oh, look, we got one here, and it's missing its feet. Oh, look, a hundred years later, we found the neat. <laughs> they found the feet <laughs> that belonged to what they found earlier, right? Just look at these things more carefully, okay? To me, okay, now, I don't know. I'm not a historian. I'm not in any of these museums or anything. But to me, most of these statues look like they are poured by resin, okay? They have been at this resin game for a very long time, so... <laughs> If anybody really believes that somebody is sitting around chiseling these things, well, we got that idea from books and stuff, right? Their historians gave us those ideas. Okay, let me continue on. Because um, um, oh, here's an example I had about this one statue, okay? There was this person called Augustus Caesar, the Roman Empire's first emperor, okay? That's Caesar, right? The marble statue of him is 2.08 meters tall and 1,000 kilograms in weight. The statue was unearthed on April the 20th, 1863 <laughs> during archaeological evacuations led by Giuseppe Gagliardi at the Villa of Levia in Prima Porta. And this belonged to Augustus' third and last wife, Livia Druisia, D-R-U-S-I-L-L-A. So, yeah, well, they discovered it on this date. So the rest of where it came from in A.D. 14 or whatever was clearly, I don't know, kind of hard to confirm, but... The statue was initially made public by German archaeologist G. Hensen, H-E-N-S-E-N, -E who published it in this correspondence in Rome in 1863. Hmm. The figure carved by experienced Greek sculptors is said to be a replica of a lost bronze original shown at Rome. The Augustus of Prima Porta is presently on exhibit at the Vatican <laughs> the Vatican Museum. Okay, so this is the uh, a big deal in the Roman thing because it's Caesar. Caesar's a really big deal and will I wander into more about Caesar? I'm not really clear here. Let me just keep going here. Um, 
It has become the most renowned of Augustus' portraits and one of the most famous sculptures of the ancient world since its discovery. So this thing discovered supposedly in the mid-1800s is, in fact, the most important piece. Okay, so now we got that straight. Okay. And then, you know, we've all heard about Hercules, right? <laughs> the Farnese Hercules is an antique Hercules statue that was possibly extended in the early 3rd century AD and signed by Glycon, G-L-Y-K-O-N, who is otherwise unknown. His name is Greek, although he may have worked in Rome. It is, like many other ancient Roman sculptures, a copy or reproduction of a much earlier Greek original that was widely known, in this instance, by bronze. So somebody constructed this thing in bronze, supposedly in 4th century BC. This original lasted almost 1,500 years until being melted down by crusaders at the sacks of Constantinople, in 1205. The bigger duplicate was created by the Bass of Caracalla in Rome and dedicated in 216 AD, where the statue was rediscovered in 1546 and is currently housed in a Naples Museum Nazionale. Okay, so that's very interesting. No, right? See, it just does seem like all roads lead to Rome now, doesn't it? <laughs> the her heroically sized Hercules is one of antiquity's most renowned sculptures, and it has permanently imprinted the image of the epic hero in the European mind. Yes, no, has it? Hercules. <laughs> okay, um... The Francois Hercules is a large marble, <clears throat> excuse me, marble statue. Okay, I don't, this is, anyway. The marble statue is based on a lost original. So, it's based on something that was lost, okay? So, I guess that comes out of somebody's mind, okay? So, this was based on a lost original that was reproduced in bronze using a, a technique known as lost wax casting. <laughs> Maybe that really is a thing. So <clears throat> it represents a, it represents a powerful, though tired, Hercules resting on his club, which is covered with the pelt of the new Neman lion, N-E-M-E-A-N. In mythology, Hercules' first mission was to slay the lion. He has recently completed one of the twelve labors, as indicated by the apples of the Hespedes he carries behind his back. The type was widely used in antiquity, not oh, excuse me, in antiquity and a Hellenic or Roman bronze. So yeah, we keep going around this other thing too about these Hellenistic, H-E-L-L-E-N-I-S-T-I-C, okay? 
And what I found interesting is out of this era, okay, there was this person called the Order, which was a bronze sculpture they cooked up. Um, um, the Iulus Metella sculpture was discovered in 1566. The precise site is unknown, although all sources agree it was discovered or at near Lake Tramia in the province of Pergip and here again right just a few kilometers from Rome so yeah all roads lead to Rome uh, the statue is dressed in a toga which consists of a short sleeve tunic beneath a close fitting tunic thrown over the left arm and shoulder while leaving the right arm free for the right arm free for mobility the hem above the left ankle and runs diagonally up just above the right calf. Remember all those um, Greek movies? Weren't there a lot of Greek movies playing some of those comedians where they dressed up in Greek animal house type things? Anyway, so, um, so they developed this thing too much for right now. But anyways... You know, all these statues, I mean, this thing could be, like, um, extraordinary, right? This could, I could designate the hunt for the next hundred years, so. Um, and they, you know, they're always do. they did a copy of this Hercules thing. Um, it's it's an a, a, antique Roman Esquitarian statue from the Capitol Hill in Rome, Italy. So, yeah, um. All roads just keep on leading me to Rome. So let me kind of scan down here. Um, oh, here's another one I had highlighted. It is one of two surviving bronze sculptures of a pre-Christian Roman emperor, the Regisoli, R-E-G-I-S-R-E-G-I-S-O-L-E, -E, which was destroyed during the French Revolution So yeah, it was destroyed. So everything seems to lead to being replicas, now, doesn't it? Okay. Um, here's another one I've been looking at. The Colossus of Constantine was a massive life-size statue of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, commissioned by himself, that originally filled the this part of this place called the Basilica near the Forum Rononum in Rome, okay? <laughs> Surviving sections of the Colossus may currently be seen in the courtyard, which is now part of this other museum. Here it says surviving sections, okay. The Colossus' huge head, arms, and legs were carved from white marble while the remainder of the body was made of a brick core and a timber structure may be plated in gilded bronze. I don't know, they just want to say this stuff may have looked like this or that, so let's keep moving along here. The statue of Delti, the statue at Delti. Um, the Antima statue at Delti is an antique statue discovered during excavations at Delphi. 
it's this Greek person. Well, I don't know. You know, these things, they have just a million different statues and things. So please, please, please take a look. I've looked at them all. I'm just trying to recap how I got there without digging through every one of them. Um, so, yeah, you know, they have all these people with people with togas that they're housed in Rome and Italy. I don't know. You know, everybody's wearing Roman stuff. They're teaching us Roman numerals and all this stuff. I, I think I can come to a pretty fair conclusion that all roads do, in fact, lead to Rome. And there's also all these people that were, you know, first kids of, I mean, this thing goes on and on and on. So anyway, so yeah, um, let me scan down here. I don't know. Just let's look for keywords when you start to look for this. Things like, oh, destroyed, redesigned, reconfigured. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so that's it on the statues. Um, the Roman statues, which, well, if you can't find them, I would get your eyes checked. <laughs> They're all over. All over the place, the Roman influence. We're in the Royal Ontario Museum in one of our storage rooms and we're looking at this wonderful relief depicting a gladiatorial combat. Just like us today, the Romans loved mass spectator sports. We love football. The Romans loved gladiator combat in these huge coliseums filled with 70, 80,000 people. Unlike football, the gladiators fought to death. this relief, which came from probably from Turkey, it could have even come from a gladiatorial school, dates to about uh, AD 200, and it has three registers, it's made of marble, you could see them wearing their helmets, the shields, the arm guards, the stabbing swords, the shin guards, and then you could see these protective boots they're wearing as well. And then in the final scene here, this gladiator is holding his knife and he is about to kill, but he's looking sideways a bit. He's looking at the crowd. There are 80,000 people screaming and yelling at him. Do they want him to live or do they want him to die? Okay, let's talk about the black nobility. What I'm essentially doing today, if you haven't sorted it out, is all of the background information about these people, you know, the Roman thing, the black nobility part and all of that, I just decided to keep going on this file and make a mega file. So it will all be in one piece because I really don't like doing, oh, this is section one, this is section three. So let's keep rolling along here, okay? Um, that's the nice thing about podcasts and part of the thinking of continuing to do my work mainly on audio because people can download podcasts and listen to them at their leisure because I do believe in the future they will be playing with our internet speeds and stuff. And if I forget to say it, I likely won't be back for the next couple of weeks um, because I'll be looking at some other things because this is kind of a big mega file as it turns out. Um, and I have a video coming out. I haven't had a video uploaded to YouTube in about a year. I have a video that should be done in the next week. And that video is about all of the deception as far as who these people are 
these black nobility people are the ones at the top who are all also transgendered. So I put together a video of all of that information. So that'll show up, you know, sometime in YouTube, I don't know, in the next week. But likely I won't be back with any more audio podcasts for a couple of weeks. So anyway, so let me keep going here. They claim that they were these Phoenicians, okay? And here's what the story is, okay? They say that the Aryans of Venus married into the nobility, bought themselves titles, and simply invented others. Well, that's probably likely true, right? And they went on to say from around 1171, they became known throughout Europe as the black nobility. So... They earned the title Black Nobility from their ruthless lack of scruple. They employ murder, rape, kidnapping, assassination, robbery, and all manner of deceit on a grand scale, brooking no opposition to gaining their objectives. These all have immense wealth and money is power. Control is the number one thing about psychopaths, so that goes along with their desire to control money. Okay, so there is a person, and he's for sure controlled opposition. His name is John Coleman out of the UK. I think he's MK, you know, he says that he was intelligence, and now he's out telling the truth. But anyways, he has a lot of stuff about this black nobility. Because remember, they're telling us part of the truth, right? So, supposedly, the most powerful of the black nobility families are located in Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Britain, Holland, and Greece, in that order. Their roots may be traced back to the Venetian oligarchs, who are of the Khazar extraction, and married into these royal houses. See, see, I, I completely disagree here because I think this whole thing is all cooked up, right? And yeah, they all married and, you know, intermarried amongst each other. So I'm just going to skip past the parts that really do not make much sense, okay? Um, because this man, his, his name is Dr. John Coleman. And he writes about this committee of 300, okay? So you clearly don't toss out anything they say because his role is to spin this deal somehow, right? Um... Okay, he talks of John Coleman talks about this committee of 300 that was established early in the 18th century, although it did not take on its present form until 1897. Okay, and that 1897 was when the China opium trade was legalized. So this makes sense. Committee of 300, 1897. Um, Supposedly, there's documentary proof as the existence of the Committee of 300, but it's not forthcoming. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, they go on to say that Dr. Coleman's work opens the door to further studies on naming members of the ruling elite, particularly in America. Well, let's just cut to the chase here because they are the uh, Romans. <laughs> so... Okay, um, yeah, because he goes, this is where you can start to really go on a spin, right? Because this is one thing I wanted to point out, though, about these people, is that 
it, it goes on to say, most, if not all, the crowned and uncrowned heads of these dynasties enjoy huge incomes from ground rents, okay? This is what they're doing now, is going around and buying up all this land. That's a belief of these black nobility folks. He's calling them the 300, but they're black nobilities, okay? Just call them BMs or whatever. So, I have a ton of files about these people, and if there's a lot more to talk about it after this show, I'll get back to it when I get back to it. So, okay. So, all industrial progress, and by famine, disease, and wars, eliminate the excess population, industry supports, yeah, um... Um, I don't know. I there. Let me scroll down here a minute. Um, because they they really get crazy about this Jesuit and the Freemason stuff, and um, that's really not anything for us to be concerned about. Okay, here's what they say about themselves: the black nobility or black aristocracy, not meaning that their mugs are black. Okay, that's why they call the White House a White House, right? Okay, they are Norman. Excuse me, Norman. <laughs> They are Roman aristocratic families who sided with the papacy under Pope plus the Ninth after the Savoy family led the army of the King of Italy. Okay, let me back up here. So, this remember the uh, royal family in Britain is supposedly out of Germany too. So, let me get a little more clear here what this is trying to tell us. Okay. So, it's Roman aristocratic families, okay? And they sided with this pope after the Savoy family led this army of the Kingdom of Italy. They entered Rome on September the 20th, 1870. That part, you know, 1870 looking good here, right? So, the Savoy family led this army into the King of Italy. Okay, so they overthrew the pope and the papal states and took over the palace, and any nobles subsequently ennobled by the Pope prior to... Well, I don't know what that means. Yeah, well, so they took over at 1870. And what the story goes on to say, for the next 59 years, the Pope confined himself to Vatican City and claimed to be a prisoner in the Vatican to avoid the appearance of accepting the authority of the new Italian government and state. Huh. So from 1870, he was hanging out there, right? And so 50 years later, yeah, so this is starting to become a time frame that's looking good, right? Um, Aristocrats who had been ennobled by the Pope and were formerly subjects of the Papal States, including the senior members of the Papal Court, kept the front doors of their palaces in Rome closed to mourn the Pope's confinement, which led to their being called the Black Nobility. Okay, so these people were in support of the Pope, who was hiding out, and they kept their doors closed. And they became called the Black Nobility. Okay. During, despite the relatively recent name, yes, aren't these things all recent? Kind of all around the 1800s, right? 
despite the relatively recent name, the black nobility had existed for centuries, originating in the baronial class of Rome and in the powerful families who moved to Rome to benefit from a family connection to the Vatican. These supported the popes in the governance of the papal states and in the administration of the Holy See. Many of the members of black noble families also became high-ranking clergy and even popes. Black nobility families, in this instance families whose ancestors included popes, still exist, including notably, oh, including notably the Colana, there, here's this list, and I can't even start to pronounce the list, okay? They're considered the major papal families, okay? Um, famous members of the black nobility families include Amaldo de Rosette, Bishop de Assiti, and um, I'll get back into these people more um, later because I have about a hundred files on the black nobility. I just thought for the context of this show about Romans and all that, I don't want to bury the lead, okay? Because the lead is is that people are also black nobility, okay? And all of these black nobility people trace to the people you see right now, um, all these royal families. Um, but it's, it's more than I really want to wander through right this minute. But I also didn't want to leave them out because it's a part of this whole Roman, <laughs> Roman sneaky deal and stuff. So, um... Yeah, um, and I have a lot of other things because um, because of their deal with land rent and stuff, I was looking into um, how much land they own in this country and stuff. Uh, it's a lot. I mean, it's just so... <laughs> um, for example, people are walking, running around talking about the um, property that Bill Gates has been buying up. Well, McDonald's <laughs> also owns a ton of property. You know, the people that are selling us that Soylent Green and those um, chicken nuggets. <laughs> so it's really uh, the Catholic Church, McDonald's, and Bill Gates who own all the properties. So, um, yeah. Um, what did I find here? Let me just tell you so I, in case I never get back to it. The Catholic Church owns the most land, far more than McDonald's and billionaire Bill Gates. If you are concerned about environmental change, global warming, and climate change, this massive player has been flying under the radar. Yeah, that's why. See, this is why they run around yelling about certain things. Like, I, I saw all these people on social media screaming their ears out as far as um, Bill Gates is buying all the farmland. Well, yeah, but also, while I'm on this subject, you know, they're, they're consolidating everything because and it, the royalty people, it's all being consolidated to the top. For example, I thought that the Chinese uh, own Smith, the big pork processing plant in this country. Now, this is going to be a really, <laughs> I'm going way off topic here, but I will say it while I can. But here's the deal. Who's the biggest beef producer? Well, it ends up being, <clears throat> it's this company called JBS or JVS. Uh, there's a show called uh, Butchers of Brazil. And they're all consolidated under that company. And that company 
actually owns the processing plants in the United States. So, yeah, what they're doing under all these royalty things, because I really do have a point that kind of ties in here, is that what they're doing is that they are um, putting everything under one bucket because I'm sure that makes it easier to then make the flow go directly to the city of London. Now, I don't know this for a fact. They've never invited me to one of their meetings. But as greedy and clever as they are, <clears throat> remember the mafia was all is all about to this day still taking kickbacks. So yeah, so consolidate all the food under one or two of them makes even more sense because their people are also greedy too. So I imagine it could also be crowd control for their own people, right? And and, and then wiping out all the other small people. But anyway. That's who the black nobility are. <clears throat> and like I said, I will be back with more of them later uh, because I have a bunch of files on them. But just for context, I wanted to put this into this show today because that's how they fit into this puzzle here. So this piece of the puzzle will yet to be talked about later down the road. Everything was on the table, including car bombings, shootings, strangling, and beatings. Many Mafia members met gruesome ends during the perpetual Mafia wars between the families. The Mafia is no longer the formidable group it once was, largely due to recent crackdowns by the U.S. government. If you didn't know these fascinating facts before, guess what? Now you know. not so fast um, this is um, the next day and I was finishing up the files to get this show on the road and I was hearing my own voice in my head saying things like well I'll get back to this black no 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 I need to get it dealt with now because I want to have all of these files hang together because that's the beauty of audio. You can just pause, you can date stamp it of your own, and you can keep listening to things you didn't catch the first time. So let's talk a little bit about this black nobility, okay? Because I'm hoping that you will go and start doing some of your own research, okay? Because basically, um, well, let me explain a couple things here. And I'll give you information and I'll give you words to hopefully go look for yourself because I've said this previously that they use genealogy to keep track of themselves, right? So let me explain some things as key things to look for because it sure would be nice if somebody would say, hey, I want to take on this genealogy thing and help this cause. And I, I would, of course, publish it on my website for you. But yeah... Um, I am not going to be doing the genealogy, but I will tell you as much as I know about it to hopefully get other people to look a little closer because it wouldn't take a lot of effort to pin down exactly who these people are to the nth degree based on their genealogy. But anyways, here's what happened. Um, part of with this black um, nobility thing, they talk about the Magna Carta. 
and the Magna Carta was demanding politicians to be accountable to the laws. And that's the cornerstone of modern democracy. Well, you know, obviously what happens is they write these laws and then they change these laws, okay? Um, so I pulled, I had some pieces in my files that make sense. So I'll, I'll share them with you. And I'll also share a couple of things for you to watch for that definitely are not true, okay? Because some truth is always mixed in with a lot of other crazy stuff, right? Okay, now this part makes a great deal of sense because remember, these are all women hiding as men, right? This quote was, the ancient queens who murdered their husbands to marry their own sons and place them on the thrones of the world to rule in their names are not to be considered moral agents and benefactors of humanity. They acted in ways consistent with Luciferian female cults whose history goes back to the time of Atlantis. Now, I'm reading from their words. I am not, I'm quoting them right now, okay? It went on to say, My revelations concerning the origin and history of the Templars and female Illuminati, they call that the Order of Sion, S-I-O-N, directly impact the saga of the black nobility, whose origins are traced back to ancient Egypt. This intriguing connection to the old world is particularly visible when we research one of the most important black nobility families, the House of Orange. So the reason I'm giving you this is as an example, okay? The House of Orange... Continuing to read in their voice, okay? The House of Orange is a most ancient institution. The dynasty has long intermarried with other noble families throughout Europe and the world. After converting to Protestantism, their descendants crossed to Britain when in 1690 they became ruling monarchs, ancestors of today's Windsors. Oh, crap, I scrolled down too far. Okay. Um, I'm continuing on. But what do we know of their origins? So much has been written and said of them, and yet what does the man in the street know about Queen Elizabeth or Queen Beatrix? What do we know of their one-time enemy, the papacy, who denied them the world power they sought but lost? And what power remains in their hands? Given that the designations Protestant and Catholic serve as convenient disguises for the world controllers, we see that the black nobility have made great use of this camouflage. In my opinion, we are quite wrong, wrong to think of them as Protestants. We are equally wrong, wrong to consider papal elites Catholic. Members of these rival groups are to be thought of as Luciferians or Cetian Atonists. That's S E T I A N. Next word is A T O N I S T S. In this sense, they are disciples and perhaps even direct descendants of the cult of Venus, Dragon Court, or Order of Sion. A study of their rites, regalia, heraldy and symbolism leaves us in no doubt of this fact. See, they state these things as fact, but I'm not saying it's fact. I'm reading what they're saying, okay? 
I'll continue on. Behind the PR veil, members of these families interact with other with 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 one another heedless of religious affiliation. The Protestant Dutch royals are related to the Spanish and Hungarian nobility, the members of which, such as King Juan Carlos, are Catholic. For Alpha Lodge members, it is a matter of window dressing designed to fool the masses. It has worked for centuries. Hence the obligatory insider smiles. No, those insider smiles are duping delight of psychopaths. <laughs> so, okay. I'm going to continue on. But as said, what do we know of these oligarchs? What do we know of their ancestors who, after the fall of Akhenaten, that's A-K-H-E-N-A-T-O-N, after the fall of Akhenaten, they set up a new unholy empire in Ireland. What do we know of their Merovigian, M-E-R-O-V-I-N-G-I-A-N branch, which colonized France to later establish the Knights of Templar? And what do we know of their eastern branches who ruled Persia, Syria, Armenia, Armenia and Palestine. Do we know the Do we know of the awesome power of their queens, who, after murdering their husbands, married their sons, setting them on the thrones of the world to rule in their names? Do we know that one of these autocrats was the biblical Jesus, who, after the death of Nero, nearly became emperor? There's a key name here. The research of the great Ralph Ellis. That's Ralph Ellis. E-L-L-I-S. See, they, they always have their agents. Just like in the world of psychopaths, they had uh, Cleckley and the current one is Robert Hare. Because that way that everybody can re refer to this person, okay? The research of the great Ralph Ellis provides us with the best insights into the origin and history of the black nobility. Consequently, I refer readers to his monumentally important book, Jesus, King of Edessa, published in 2012. This superlative work reveals how ancient the families of the black nobility are and how much power they've wielded through the centuries. As Ralph shows in his book, this book called Mary Magdalena, the House of Orange, is related to the descendants of the Hykos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, nobility, who after their exile from Egypt moved to Parthia in eastern Iran. From this region, they relocated to Syria in 4 AD, after which they are to be found in Provence, France. In the 17th century, after their conversion to Protestantism, they married in with Dutch branches of the dynasty and crossed to Britain where they became the ruling monarchs, the Windsors. This family is really an ancient network descending from notorious pharaohs of old. The network extends across Europe and all the world. The black nobility are to be found listed as the rulers of Italy, Sicily, Spain, Portugal, France, Alicandorraine, Greece, Switzerland, Belgium, Holland, and Britain. Among the bloodlines are the houses of Hanover, Habsburg, you know, the people with those chins, <laughs> Hanover, Habsburg, Lorraine, Geppe, 
Nassau, Hesse, Gise, Estes, Savoy, Melbourne, and Grosvenor. Um, and then there was one here that I had been looking at to see that if it made sense. Okay, I had been looking at the um, oh the Queen Elizabeth gang. Okay, okay. Prince Philip is of the House of Oldenburg. The Queen Mother was of the Bose Lion L Y O N family. Queen Elizabeth is a descendant of the Saxe-Coburn-Gotha dynasty. And Prince Charles is a descendant of the Montbatten, who changed their name from Battenberg to disguise their Germanic, Germanic origins. Okay. Um, and some of this stuff just gets way too back and too crazy right now, but... Um, what you do if you want to look at some of this stuff is, um, oh, this is where it gets, uh, they say they trace all this stuff back to uh, Mary and Jesus, okay? <laughs> so, um, what'd they say here? Um, Mary Magdalene, Princess of Orange, it's a book by this Ralph Ellis person, okay? Mary Magdalene, Princess of Orange by Ralph Ellis, brilliantly carries on the story started but not completed by the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The book gets to the truth about the origin and adventures of the real Mary Magdalene, whose descendants now rule Holland, Britain, and the world. Ralph's investigation into the Parthia and Nessa Edessan nobility does not dwell on the question of female secret societies. Nevertheless, Ralph's finding proved invaluable to those wishing to hone in on this controversial subject. In my video, this is this isn't me. In my video presented the Eastern Illuminati, I mentioned the various power families and personages who constitute less-known branches of the Setian Atanas Cabal, whose tentacles spread across the planet. In my article, The Cult of My Trust, I also address the subject, showing the secret societies. Yeah, okay, so, but remember, if you want to look, I would give you some suggestions here, and I would personally hone in around the 1800 time frame. <laughs> Um, because here's the deal. They want to spin you back to Mary and Jesus. Okay, so I don't know. I think I pretty well proved that Mary and Jesus was all made up. So I tend to start spinning it around the 1800 time frame. And then I go forward and backwards from there. Okay, let me scroll down here. Um, this th These people go on very convincingly, okay? And here's another quote by this Ralph Ellis person. Ralph Ellis' discoveries show that not only did Mary Magdalene live in France, but that the biblical Jesus was in, incar, incarcerated. <laughs> it doesn't mean incarcerated. I think it means incarcerated again, like reborn again. Okay, Ralph Ellis' discoveries show that not only did Mary Magdalene live in France, but that the biblical Jesus was Incar oh, it is incarcerated. Okay. <laughs> it's early. 
Okay, the biblical Jesus was incarcerated in Chester, England, where he ended his days. Okay, the biblical Jesus ended his days in Chester, England. Why are so many figures of Judeo-Christian and Egyptian history associated with England, Ireland, and the West? Is it because the West was known to them as its original homeland and font of all wisdom? Well, I think that just sounds like a sack of crap to me, but... Okay, um, and this is a little bit piece here. It says, um, they talk about, um, yeah, they keep talking about, um, I've already covered this Judaism and the, um, thing. And here's another thing that this Ralph Ellis has to say. Queen Thea Muse Koranian I think it's Q-U-R-A-N-I-N, is revealed by Ralph Ellis to have been the grandmother of the biblical Jesus. As a descendant of the predatory Queen Cleopatra, she and her daughter Helena were supreme matriarchs of what I referred to as the Eastern Illuminati. Yeah, this stuff is just loaded and loaded with rabbit holes, okay? So, anyways, so yeah, um... They, ha they supposedly have a coin that depicts the head of the Jesus, King of Edessa, and claimant to the throne of Rome. Okay, so this, we keep, all roads lead to Rome, right? So, they say this crown of thorns designated him as King of the Jews, okay? Well, 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 okay, let me scroll down here. I, you know, you're going to have to think for yourself, okay, because this thing is kind of... Um, and here's just some other words you run into. Um, okay, previous attempts to expose the Templar conspiracy focuses too heavily on a single female protagonist, Mary Magdalena, making no mention of a female society. See, this stuff does make sense if you consider that the men, it's a dual world, right? The men we see as ruling family members are truly females, right? See how they flip their sexes? So all these Queen Beatrix of these people are really men. So, okay, let me keep going here. Okay, these previous attempts to expose the Templar conspiracies focused too heavily on a single female protagonist, Mary Magdalene, making no mention of a female society. This is the major oversight that needs correcting. Yes, I agree, because see, none of these people are admitting that any of these people are transgendered, right? See how this works? I mean, one of their agents does all this genealogy stuff, and he goes out of his way to say with confidence, yep, they're gay. The word transgender never enters their dialogue for a specific reason. So anyway, so this over major oversight that needs correcting, do tell. Okay, the Order of Sion, S-I-O-N, was not headed by one mysterious matriarch from an illustrious dynasty, not by a long chalk. As the great royal wives, oh wait, as the great royal wives controlled the Egyptian pharaohs, so in later times, so in later times have a female Illuminati direct, directed the destiny of the world through their male deputies. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense because remember, they are women hiding as men, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, just think about that one, okay? And then they, they, they seem to focus on Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, okay? She is the present matriarch of the House of Orange. She is a Knight of the Garter. Knight of the Garter is who they pass off as the main stopping point. And a member of the Bilderberg Organization. Probably, probably, see, probably, probably it's Supreme Controller. In any case, this red-haired family is directly, directly descendant from the Magdalena bloodline. Oh, boy. And related to the present monarchs of Britain. Um, down to Prince William. And this is according to, of course, Ralph Ellis, okay? Um... And then they always what then then Ralph Ellis points out that Prince Harry because these other people they say are redheads okay Prince Harry Duke of Sussex son of Prince Charles note his coloring his ancestor was a grand master of English masonry under another royal ancestor George the first first monarch of the Hanoverian dynasty and king of England, <laughs> the black nobility, <laughs> the, the black no nobility reorganized and consolidated Freemasonry in Britain. Given that the black nobility are descendants of the Parthian descendants, it follows that their ideological allegiance has secretly always been the Nazrim forsec. Well, you know, um, why does Prince Harry have red hair? Well, you'd have to go ask a woman who was not his mother, but a surrogate person, because these people haven't been having their own kids for a long time. So some of this stuff is just luck of the draw. Why do none of them show any family resemblance? <laughs> so, okay, yeah, so um, this black nobility thing, I, I could go on, but I think I've given you enough to hopefully encourage you to go further <clears throat> okay because I, I think that the goal is start around the you know 1800 range to, to track back who these people are so anyway so enough of them here we go recording this show so I'm going to be closing up now but I have some really important things I want to close with as far as this black nobility deal okay but first let me get to towels you're thinking why towels well there is a reason why cheap hotels use cheap thin towels because you can wash a lot more of them and here's a deal if you wash towels and line or air dry them they become very absorbent you know versus putting them into the um, dryer and stuff okay and just consider this likely going to be a time that you can't use your washer and dryer okay maybe you can't use your washer and dryer but you've got access to water get yourself a few buckets 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 with handles very cheap to get you can stack them off in the corner 
but if you need to rinse and wash things, you're going to need buckets, okay? Just remember, before washing machines, people actually hung their clothes out to dry, okay? And here's the deal. Um, we're used to usually these big, fat, thick towels. Well, trying to hand wash those towels, because I think keeping towels clean would be a priority, hand washing huge towels would be a huge problem, not only in water usage, but also trying to wring out a big, luxurious bath towel. Now, I have been using this method for a few months. I only share with you with things that I think are going to be pretty important and things that I've tried myself. So, here's the deal. Um, if you get hand towels versus big towels, they're easier to deal with. And I use, for example, three hand towels per shower, right? Okay, so what do you do with hand towels? Well, cotton is going to be an issue down the road, so the time would be now to invest in cotton-thin hand towels. And if you say, well, I got these big, fat, thick ones, well, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm just saying consider what's going to happen down the road, and washing those big, huge, thick towels may not be so effective. Now, you could also, you could order at Costco online without being a member. And here's a deal, which is kind of something I've been doing for years just because somebody gave them to me and I thought, wow. At Costco, they sell these Unitex, U-N-I-T-E-X, 100% cotton towels. And where do you find them? <laughs> but the automotive department. <laughs> They're basically 14 by 17 washcloths, 100% cotton. You get like 52 of them for under $30. So it's a really good deal and they're the kind of weight that you want in the cotton. And in the hand towels, what you're looking for are the 12 packs, the packs that, for example, you would buy if you had a hotel or some sort of restaurant, right? And the 12 pack of hand towels run about $25, including shipping, and those are roughly 16 by 30. And much different, much different weight. But anyway, just think about it for yourself. If you, if you think you want to handle those big bulky towels, then be my guest. But if I were you, I would think about things. Okay, I am not sure if I will be back next Tuesday uh, because uh, I need. To, I have a lot of things we need to get to. And uh, but I will have a video, the first video I've done in over a year, that'll be going up to YouTube. I, I did it for the website, but we'll go ahead and upload it to YouTube. And here's the reason: I've compiled all of the work I've been doing on all these hormones and what all this means to put that out there, okay? And then also, I was also thinking about this whole system is set up on a good-for-thee-but-not-for-me basis, isn't it? Anyway, that um, thing was just going in my head. So, um, always look for these key words, okay? I think I covered all I was going to say about it. Oh, one other thing about um, water. Um, a, I always have to figure these weird details out, so I'll share with you. Okay, one case, you want to look for purified water, not spring water. One case, I'll give you an example of what's available at Walmart. One case of 38 bottles or something like that, 20 ounce bottles of water, purified water, runs about $6, okay? That case is about five gallons, okay? You can comfortably stack four of those cases up without 
creating a situation where they could be getting knocked over, okay? So if each case is five gallons and you can stack four of them, each stack you're gonna have is 20 gallons, okay? What I'm encouraging you to do is start stacking, okay? Even if this week you can only buy one case of water, okay? Start with that one case of water. Then next week, add the next case of water. And before you know it, you'll have some nice stacks of water built up, okay? What I did was I used some very cheap, um, I found some cheap sheets online to cover these things just because cycle, I've been doing this for a long time and I don't want to feel like I'm living in a warehouse. <laughs> so <laughs> I got some cheap, very cheap, you know, flat sheets and I just cover my stacks up, okay? Just a little psychological thing for myself. So every keep stacking those things because remember, water is going to be key. Fill every every empty bottle you have, fill it back up. You're going to make sure that you want to have water to flush your toilet. So enough of that. Let me get to this other stuff here to close off on this darn black nobility stuff. For example, another person who's done a lot of stuff in this black nobility is David Icke. Well, somebody, well, they, they, these agents, they do things on each other, right? So one agent who does a lot of this genealogy stuff actually did a genealogy thing on David Icke. And that's how it works. Because people, I guess, don't start thinking this person pointing out other people is an agent themselves, right? So anyway, so yeah, there's a lot of good data already out there that people started with. And always listen to the words, because for example, when I was going over this black nobility stuff, the sentence starts out with, despite the relatively recent name, the black nobility had existed for centuries, originating in the baronial class of Rome, okay? They had, you know, that that's a pretty open statement, right? Despite, well, why is it a relatively recent name? I don't know, okay? All of the families are connected to the Gulup, G-U-E-L-P-H, one of the original black nobility families of Venice, from which the House of Windsor and thus the present Queen of England, Elizabeth, descends. The Gulups are so entwined with the German arist aristocracy through the House of Hanover yeah, so all of these, you're looking for the Gulip, G-U-E-L-P-H, okay? And another name you're going to be looking for who's in this mix, there's a man named Dr. John Coleman. Now, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he supposedly is an ex-M16 officer and a whistleblower. <laughs> so, Dr. John Coleman reminds us that the term black nobility is one used by these families to describe themselves. This is because in times past, like the mafia, <laughs> they enjoyed being known for their black deeds. Uh, although today we're hoodwinked by the media and people like John Coleman, <laughs> I we're hoodwinked by the media, which presents these families as great philanthropists and benefactors. They are, in fact, the supreme authorities, not only behind powerful chivalric and equestrian orders, but a network of sinister satanic cults 
guilty of unimaginable crimes against humanity. Yes, I do have to agree with older Dr. John Colbin on that one. So anyway, I'm going to close this out. I'll close it out with the words of the great Walter Cronkite, the man that the entire America trusted. I will likely not be back next Tuesday. If the shows, what happens is, I'm not running a big corporate thing here, so if the show gets uploaded before Tuesday, like on Monday or something, I go ahead and release it then. Because last week there was a pretty big problem with the upload. It took hours, and it's because, well, I'm not going to go into it right now. So anyways, be safe out there, kids. Goodbye for now. This is my last broadcast as the anchor man of the CBS Evening News. For me, it's a moment for which I long have planned, but which nevertheless comes with some sadness. For almost two decades, after all, we've been meeting like this in the evenings, and I'll miss that. But those who have made anything of this departure, I'm afraid, have made too much. This is but a transition, a passing of the baton. A great broadcaster and gentleman, Doug Edwards, preceded me in this job, and another, Dan Rather, will follow. And anyway, the person who sits here is but the most conspicuous member of a superb team of journalists. Writers, reporters, editors, producers, and none of that will change. Furthermore, I'm not even going away. I'll be back from time to time with special news reports and documentaries, and beginning in June, every week with our science program, Universe. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6, 1981. I'll be away on assignment, and Dan Rather will be sitting in here for the next few years.
listener. My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards the show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce the show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep the show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you.